I've been looking forward to this episode for a while now. We had the opportunity to speak with a former clinician at one of Ted Soul's outpatient therapy offices. They provided some particularly valuable insight as to what Ted's business industry was doing and a lot of how it connected to the ranch. So anyway, without further ado, let's call Kelly Green. The White House announced that President Trump had commuted the prison sentence of Ted Sewell, a former operator of a behavioral health company in Arkansas. When when Teddy choked me, I called him and Sheila in the mall as well. Teddy had a way of talking down to us and being very disrespectful. They just tackled this dude. And, like, he hits his head on the concrete and, and, like, busted. He's bleeding a little bit. He's like, dude, like, why would they do that to me? And I was like, dude, I don't, like, I'm just, like, shell-shocked. You know, I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> so when I started telling him I knew about him and Sheila and he was sneaking around and all that, he comes around the car and pushes me up against the pole up under the car porch and chokes me. And when he does that, I kick him in his thing and we're fighting at that point who was convicted on bribery and fraudulent charges in July of 2016. The White House said Trump's decision to commute Sewell's sentence was influenced by former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee and former U.S. Attorney Bud Cummins. And uh, he pretty much grabbed the kid out of the chair, uh, jumped on him, grabbed him out of the chair, knocked him to the floor, and desks went everywhere. They ended up under the teacher's desk and I heard, which was about like eight, 10 feet away. And I heard what I thought at the time was probably a pencil snap, but it turned out to be the kid's arm. I do know that it was made out to be the kid's fault. See, I had to, I had to write up a report also of what happened, but when they read my report, they asked me to change it. Charlie warned us not to talk to anybody about anything at the ranch and to say everything was good because Ricky would be taken back to his drug addicted mother and would probably die. I got called up to the office to be on a phone call with somebody, I, I don't remember the guy's name, and they were asking us questions about it. <clears throat> well, when I, they had a copy of my report about what happened there. It wasn't my report. It was a typewritten report, not the handwritten one I had. My, it, it had my signature on it. Yes, they had copied my signature. It was a photocopy. The whole thing was a photocopy of it. Hey, is this Kelly? Yes. Hey, this is Ryan. Hi there. How you doing? I'm good. I guess what I want to do is I guess uh, start with uh, your story. Uh, so sure. uh, this podcast is obviously about the Lord's Ranch and what really happened there. And the Lord's Ranch, or at least the owners of the Lord's Ranch, had an outpatient business as well. And you worked there. Do you want to kind of give me some background on that and just kind of sure. tell me a yeah. little bit about it? So um, initially, and for most of the time it was open, um, the outpatient arm of the Lord's Ranch was called Arkansas Counseling Associates. Um, I initially heard that that existed probably in like 2000 and 
two, I think. Um, and that was because these, these facilities, not just the Lord's Ranch, but several others realized that if they were licensed by Medicaid to provide residential services, then it sort of automatically meant that they also met all the qualifications for doing outpatient because residential was stricter. So they also recognized that there was another pot of money to be made from. Ah, and gotcha. um, yeah, and, and it happened because of a rule change with Arkansas Medicaid right around 2001 that allowed for just like a huge outpouring of new for-profit mental health providers in this, in this state. Um, and so I uh, finished my bachelor's in 2001 and became just like a sort of basic case manager type for a different mental health agency. And then I finished my master's in 2005. And the first time I worked for Arkansas Counseling as a therapist was in 2007. Okay. Um, and it was in Paragould, Arkansas. I live in Jonesboro. It was in Paragould, about 30 minutes from here, which was a big, huge referral area for them. Um, it was the most disorganized place I've ever worked for. Really? And unprofessional, yes. None of their documents looked professional. They all looked like they'd been photocopied about a billion times. Um, what do you mean by that? Do they look blurry or hot? Yeah, like, so most of the places I worked, we had, like, a hospital or doctor's offices. We had an electronic charting system. I mean, even in the mid-aughts, like, that was mostly the standard. And if it wasn't the standard, it was becoming that. Um, and they didn't. And they also didn't give out any copies of the files that they used or had anything professionally printed. They would just print a photocopy from the home office and fax it out everywhere. And then we all had to make photocopies oh, of, the, of the notes that we used. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, and so I worked for them at that time. I worked for them for about probably only about six months. And honestly, at that time, it was just because I found another job in a place that was not... Um, just like I said, totally disorganized. I mean, we, the office that we were in was super cheap, I'm sure, and it was old, and they didn't put any money into uh, fixing it up. They operated like several other of the for profit mental health agencies at the time. They operated in what was called home based services. So they would advertise that. You know, you don't even have to leave to get your counseling. We're going to let the therapist and, or the case manager come to you and see you, um, which was because they didn't want to pay for anybody to have offices. Um, and oh, they wow. also didn't want to, they wanted to make sure that uh, their no-show rate was very low. So if it was the therapist's responsibility to go to the home of the client then there was way less no-shows because, you know, we, it was, we didn't make money unless we saw our clients because we were paid hourly by the hour billed. Now, at which that's not, that's not anything controversial, but it did mean that, like, if I couldn't find somebody, I couldn't get paid. Um, 
Yes. It's, and I'll never work that way again and yeah. haven't for a very long time. Because as you can imagine, all of the patients that I saw had Medicaid, um, which meant that oftentimes their home was not a good place to do therapy or have privacy or even a space where two people could sit down and talk to each other. Right. Have a seat on um, the lazy boy with the cigarette right. burns. I did a lot of therapy <laughs> sitting in my car in their driveway. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, a lot. And so I left there um, with a real bad taste in my mouth, um, did a lot of other things, worked other places, and then um, just had some different changes come up in my life and uh, was looking to have a job with a little bit of flexibility, and this would have been in early no, late 2012, um, okay. and a friend of mine was working for them, and she was leaving, and she called me, and she's like, you're going to walk into a full caseload, and it's a lot better, um, and they've up to the rate that they're paying people, so I'm like, okay, I'll give them a chance again. I knew even more at that time about the bad stuff that was going on with their residential facility, but I, I trusted my friend because she also did. And so I went back to work for them. Um, and, and the things that she said was true, but when I went back to work for them was right as all of the raids were starting and the, um, the FBI, I think raided them at least, you know, the last time or, or the time that led to, you know, the end of the company right. in early 2013 is when that happened. Um, but they were still, even at that time, still using paper, paper documentation. So we're talking about like five years later, you know, where even more people, the norm is electronic records. And we all had a sense that we were the last ones using paper documentation because they could manipulate it 100%. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> there, was, there was never any proof of that. Um, but we never saw our patients' charts because all of the notes and everything for our patients was held in Warm Springs at the ranch. So once again, so you, yeah. you never saw their charts. What kind of information would you glean from a patient's chart? that you weren't uh, able to get because of it? Well, we couldn't see progress notes from other clinicians or like, so in this system, because most of these kids um, had Medicaid, you know, I was a therapist, but then like a bachelor's level person would also be a case manager to them. So usually we would work in teams, you know, so those people would also be doing notes. Um, and, and so we didn't see any of that. Um, eventually, and I say eventually, so like, the beginning of 2014, which was when everything was in full swing as far as we knew bad things were happening. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Um, finally, it was starting to come out. Yes. So they finally were about to switch to electronic records, but I guess some accrediting body forced them to start scanning in the paper charts into a file and so then what we had access to was just like a computer file with every one of our clients and so then we were able to see like pdf copies of, of progress notes that other people had done 
um, and ourselves. And like every client has to have a master treatment plan and that's like a Medicaid requirement. And so we would be able to see that, um, which is really important as a therapist, you have to update it every 90 days or the charts out of compliance and you might not get paid. So if you can't see it, it's kind of a big deal, you know? So what, Um, what, what is a master treatment plan? Is that basically just what you and, you know, certain goals for the client to, to reach and things of that nature? Yeah. So when, when you, when you start seeing, well, at least per, I guess this is pretty standard across the board. When you start seeing anybody for counseling, uh, the first appointment is called an intake and if you've ever been in counseling anybody that's listening to this it's just you sit down and you kind of tell your story they ask you a lot of questions about symptoms or whatever and it's a lot more cut and dry so that's where they gather the information and you and you work with the client to develop some goals and and by the next appointment you you have to have written up a treatment plan for them which would include like a big goal, like their diagnosis, depression, ADHD, whatever. And then a big goal that's broad, like I want to be able to manage my time better. And then you would also have to include measurable objectives. Like all of these are rules that Medicaid sets out for us. Okay. Uh, and so we did that. Um, and in per rules of Medicaid, when you write a progress note when you see someone you have to document directly from the treatment plan which means that you have to in your writing somehow talk about what you worked on and that it was something that was identified as a problem in that treatment plan okay so if when we did not have access to those charts we were doing a lot of things that was very hard to um, keep us HIPAA compliant because we're not supposed to have any of that information just on our person. You know what I mean? So everybody I do had like a locked file on their laptop or whatever that would be copy and paste of what we would send to there. This created a huge amount of work for us that I have never had to do at any other agency because they were so hell-bent on keeping paper records interesting um yes but so so that's why it's so important but finally we were able to have access to that but the ranch was starting to and i know that they knew they must have known that they were going to get in trouble but when um the affordable care act was passed one of the rules of that law said that if you're going to bill Medicaid or you're going to do anything under Medicaid, you have to use electronic charting. Okay. Um, and so in literally the last six months that the company was open, they shifted all of their outpatient. Now, I don't know about their residential because I didn't see that, but we, we were all switched to software that must have cost them a fortune that they'd never invested in until they literally had to within months of them being shut down, which I've always thought was kind of funny. That's actually pretty hilarious given that they cut so many corners. They must have lost so much money. (laughs) Yeah, and they cut so many corners (laughs) to save money. So for for a whole six months, they spent all that money, and then they ended up getting in trouble. So, yeah, that's that's kind of amusing. Yes. But um, Mm -hmm. so when I went to work for them the second time, 
I stayed longer because I did have kind of a full caseload of people that were seeing me. I, I, I always felt like my work with my clients was not anything that was reflective of that company. You know what I mean? And I had coworkers that worked with me that I felt very strongly the same. But then I also had a few coworkers that were what most of us sort of called holdovers. Holdovers from from the days of the ranch. Because by the time I worked for them the second time, it was Trinity. Um, Trinity was the ranch. And they were actually starting to change to Maxis, which was what they were starting to try and call their outpatient clinics. And they also spent all this money rebranding everything once again, like four to five months before they were shut down. Do you know why um, they started to rebrand? Was it because they had developed just a, such a bad reputation which with the name they used? or I mean, I, just, yeah. I, I never understood Yes, that. I really believe so because um, that's also part of what I'm going to tell you about is like how bad a reputation that Arkansas Counseling had in a lot of the places where it expanded really quickly, like in the mid to late aughts. Um, mm. So, but, but my job towards the end, I mean, I, we're going to go back and forth, but I, I think fil- finishing that. So I actually was a therapist with them from their outpatient clinic all the way till I got laid off by them um, when they lost their license to build Medicaid, which was in November of 2014. And, and why did um, they lose that license? Was that due to stuff that happened at the uh, inpatient facility? Yes, it was because they had brought, that was once they had finally brought federal bribery charges against Ted Sewell. Ah, okay. And that was, what year yeah. did you say that was? It was 2014. 2014 when they did that. Okay. And then it was like two mm-hmm. years later when he was convicted, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. But but at that time, as far as I knew, you know, I mean, like, I know y'all talked about people kind of as holdovers. I know that the, the people that were there that were not being billed Arkansas, that Arkansas Medicaid was not being billed on may have stayed, you know, but they lost their they lost their licensing um, with JCO too, which is like the the accrediting body that regulates residential facilities and hospitals. Oh, okay. And actually, one thing that's kind of interesting that you might consider, I don't know if any of this is public information, it may not be, but the ranch did go through JCO accrediting several times, all the way back to the mid-aughts. Um, because I worked there when one of them was happening and it was a huge deal and it made us have to do all of this different paperwork in my job. But I wonder, it would be interesting to see whether copies of those, um, you know, accreditation visits and all of that stuff, because it's a big deal. I mean, they bring people to your facility. They have to look at it and make sure that you follow all the rules, you know, make sure all of your staff is trained. That's one of the big things they look at is the training logs for your staff, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, but anyway, um, as, as it got closer and closer, you know, we all knew at least by the summer before that, that something was going on. And like a lot of people started to leave, understandably, you know? Um, 
I decided to stay. I was also working part-time teaching college and um, I was supervising some social work students that were college students. And I was like, you know, if they lay me off, I'm just going to draw an employment for a little bit and just kind of, you know, figure out what I want to do. I, I made a conscious decision, not for any moral reasons, you know what I mean? But just to kind of stick it out till the end. Right. Sink with the um, ship, so to speak. Right. And so it was a really interesting situation um, because we kept getting paid. You know, we, we would have to turn in our notes in weekly and then we would get paid or whatever. But, you know, they first lost um, like they first lost ability to bill Medicaid for any service that wasn't a medical service. And so like the case managers that were working with me that were doing like paraprofessional stuff they all lost their jobs first. Okay. Um, and then, then there was like a decision that their Medicaid license had been pulled, I think in September for everything, but they, they had appealed it. And I guess part of the way that they appealed it was that they had to keep providing the services for free. So for two months, I was just being paid by, I guess the reserves Right. Of, of the company um, until we actually lost our job. But yeah, for two months, um, we just didn't really know it was going to happen. And they weren't telling anyone anything. And the lady that was the supervisor in my office, um, she was actually their marketer. She was a marketer for them. Um, she was not like a clinician or anything. Um, but even she didn't know anything. And like, she was young. They kind of hired her like, close to the end they didn't vet her very well for their standards because she wasn't religious you know what i mean she thought what they were doing was weird and she was kind of like just out of college with this marketing degree and it was like hey we're going to hand you this management job and pay you all this money it's kind of easy to see why you know she would take it or whatever you know so the outpa- but she is the person oh, no go ahead I was, I was going to say, so the outpatient facility that you uh, worked at, there was a religious uh, grounds to it as well. So you would, was that <laughs> like, really. was that kind of a, okay. I, I was just kind of. She was connected to the ranch though. Oh, so like, I see. She was our supervisor, but also because she did marketing for them, that included the residential and outpatient facilities so she had to be there a lot more than we did i only had to go there ever just one time for orientation and would you um, which would is you a story in and of itself strictly would you work strictly with adolescents or was it with adults was it with anybody how, how no, did that work? i actually worked with all ages i mean i had kids as young as six or seven and then i was pretty much i mean i was one of the only people i i predominantly see adults in my own practice now and i saw quite a few adults whenever i worked there so i mm. saw all ages uh, and and their outpatient facilities were licensed to see all ages now we were heavily encouraged to refer problematic adolescents to the residential facility though Ah, yes. Yeah. And that that was a very smooth process that they, you know, that they gave us for doing that. I never referred any patients to the residential facility. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I've kind of gotten, I've kind of gathered that. And there was uh, some judges as well that might have been 
heavily encouraged to do the same. If I'm, yeah, uh, from, from what I understand, that's all speculation, I I suppose. But uh, there were well, I, yeah, and that that is some information about a judge that whose daughter was a marketer. But there's very little to finish the story from the end. All that happened in the end was for a month we billed, knowing that they weren't getting reimbursed. And then I think it was the first week of December, they sent a fax to every office telling them that it would be closed the next day and that they would not have a job anymore. After all of that time and all of us wondering what was going on and there being all this back and forth, all they did was send a fax to each office. So they're just panicking on the other side and you have no idea what's going on. They're not telling you anything. And then you Nothing. literally are told the day before you leave that it's over. Right. Which is highly unethical because we're supposed to be able to terminate with our clients, which meant it was on me to do that with people and not get paid for it. And how many clients did you have at that time? Well, I kept taking more towards the end because so many therapists were leaving. Sure. But I mean, whenever I was sort of just like normal full-time caseload, I would say that's about 25, 25 to 30. Because some you see maybe once or twice a week and some you'd see, you know, two or every two or three weeks. So So did you have a secretary or anything that would help you kind of work with that? Or were you just strictly just making all these phone calls from wherever they had you sitting? So, I mean, the secretaries did call all the clients to tell them that we were closing. And I'm pretty sure that one of the things they did was make sure that the doctor wrote prescriptions, you know, for like a month or two or three months for for any medicine that was being prescribed, you know. I see. Um, Because those are things that could get them in like a lot more trouble, you know. Right. Um, But as far as like that, yeah, yeah. But like for outpatient therapy, nothing. I mean, because those clients did not want to hear from the secretary that, hey, you're not going to see your therapist anymore. Because of the nature of the job, I had a cell phone that was like just a burner phone that was just for work. Right. So that people could contact me and not my personal number, you know what I mean, and clients. So, I mean, I just started getting tons of calls and texts from clients. Right. You build a relationship with these people. They're going to want to talk to you. I'm in their house every week, you know, like, and of course it wasn't like they didn't know. I mean, we did have tons of clients that were leaving. I mean, a lot of people knew what was going on, but a lot of them were like, hey, I want to stick with you until you go somewhere else, you know, because, um, and, of course, there was another for-profit clinic, which, I mean, I'm not going to, like, talk crap about any of the other clinics. But, I mean, the nature of for-profit work is that there was another agency that kind of came in and swooped up um, all the crumbs literally the next day after we got that fax. Um, by crumbs, I did you not mean to work. they came in and they yeah. got basically all yeah, the information, all the, all the clients, stuff like that, right. and then took over the building, I guess, or – no, 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 no. They didn't take over the building because they were already operating in in Paragold. I mean, it's it's a company called Life Strategies. I don't really have anything bad to say about them. I mean, for a lot of our clients, I was glad that they did that. You know what I mean? Like, because then they could just, like, have continued mental health services, you know. But, yeah, they just, like, hired most of the people that were working there and facilitated them 
getting, you know, starting their services over in a new agency and all of that stuff. I was kind of worn out and wasn't really sure what I wanted to do after that. And so I, you know, talked with my clients and terminated with them and then referred them all to other providers or whatever. But the other thing was that uh, we have a college, well, you know, I'm going to talk about it, Arkansas State University, and there's a master's and a bachelor's social work program at that school. And those people have to do internships. So, like, I started that semester with two. But because everyone left, that was part of the reason I stayed was that I was supervising six college students that were finishing their internship in a company that was closing oh, wow. um, as all of that was going on. It was a really good learning experience for yeah. them. This isn't the but norm, was, yeah. but now you're prepared. No, no. <laughs> no, but it created just like an enormous amount of work for me that when it was over, I was just kind of like, and it was sort of like Christmas time when all of that stuff wrapped up, you know what I mean? And so oh, yeah. I was just like, I'm going to take a break for a little while. So did they give you any severance or anything after <laughs> laying you off or was it just see ya? Not a dollar, nothing, zero. Nothing. Okay. Which and they never even me. contacted me again ever. We had direct deposits. So like they paid me for my last visits and literally sent nothing else to us. Didn't do anything. Zero. How many offices did the outpatient, how many outpatient facility offices were there? So at the height of, of having all of the offices that they had, I think they had like 15 or 20 outpatient clinics. Oh, wow. Just spread out yeah, all there was a Arkansas? Lot all over Arkansas. So, so they would open an office in a small, like rural Arkansas town that probably didn't really have its own mental health services there, or if it did, it was very small or, you know, and so they would go to the school district and they would market to the school district and say, Hey, look, if you will refer all the clients to us that you would be sending to mental health. And we will provide you with um, a mental health tech for your alternative school for free. What? Yes. That's kind of because is that ethical or is is that commonplace? Well, it's kind of weird, and it is, and it isn't. I mean, I think it's unethical because I I believe, and the law says that that clients should have a choice of provider. And that they shouldn't be pigeonholed towards one. I mean, that goes for residential. So the whole podcast is kind of messed up with that regard when you have courts ordering people to one specific facility. Right. But, it's, um, it's, it just seems like bribery or something. And then right. what, what if somebody it's thinks like, they do better like at legal another? legal bribery, pretty right. much what it is. Right. You know? Kind of like stocks um, or legal gambling, you know? <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, so they would, you know, in some of the bigger places, they would have like a monitor and, and work the quote unquote, you know, either alternative school or in some schools, it was in school suspension. So that the, the school district would have like one paraprofessional position that like they didn't have, you know, they could send somewhere else or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, another rule that had changed recently was 
it's always interesting how this company knew about all the changes of the rules and they benefited from them almost immediately. It's almost like they have a connection to people in government or something like that. You know what I mean? Oh, you mean like Asa um, Hutchinson and Mike right. Huckabee and Bill Clinton and yeah, all the other people they've been connected to? People. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How funny is that? But So there was a rule change where mental health providers could bill Medicaid in the school setting, which honestly is a good rule. There, there, are, there are therapists in schools. There are some kids that would never get mental health services, you know, if somebody wasn't seeing them in a school. Um, but they took that and ran with it um, because there was there were services that you could bill for that were known as like paraprofessional services, um, day treatment services. If you could document that kids had a bad enough, you know, diagnosis, symptoms, et cetera, then there would be these day services that they could bill for. It would be like all day, you know, it would be like somebody that sort of would be, you know, in a, in a, perfect world what this would be would be trained people that would be working with only kids that had the most severe mental health problems right and providing one-on-one services to them because they may not be able to exist in a school setting without them that's not what was happening right instead you're incentivizing people to make kids seem worse than they are and then giving them people who aren't overly qualified which was typically the case at the ranch Yes. And so oftentimes there would be, you know, one attendant in like whatever in school suspension or whatever class that they were supervising. Now, I wasn't in all of these schools. You know, I know that some of these schools were very understaffed and and I don't think every one of the people that did these jobs did them horribly. You know what I mean? I'm sure that there are kids that were in some of these classes that probably were better off with a little bit more one-on-one help you know what i mean but what was but what was going on in terms of billing is that you had huge numbers of kids that would be rated at what we called like high needs services which was supposed to be only for kids that had been like hospitalized num- a number of times you know right. what i mean maybe, or maybe, maybe they need the lord's ranch right. now and yeah yeah kicked out you know kicked out of school or whatever and so it was definitely a pipeline to the ranch but even then i mean they also just had a massive amount of outpatient billing that they could do in these schools because of course, in these classrooms where these paraprofessionals were attendants, you know, there would be clients of Arkansas counseling that were in those classrooms that were being billed on all day long. Now they did usually have to have a contract with the school that said that they would attend to behavior issues or problems of kids that were in there that were not their clients. You know what I mean? And sure. so, like, that was supposed to be part of it. But part of the reason why schools started to kick them out after a few years was because they wouldn't do that. They would not provide the services to everyone. They would specifically want to focus on the kids that were their clients. Um, Interesting. And so what happened was people would start getting mad at them and then they would just close it. Like they shut down offices in places in Arkansas sort of without telling anyone. And they would just like pull out of a school district, like, and, and, 
you know, if somebody was doing that job that was like part of the community there that lived there, you know, then they would be like, well, the office closed. But in some cases, you know, it was just like ACA. That's what everybody called it. ACA would just be gone, you know, and 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 I know several South Arkansas schools where that happened, um, which means they also closed their outpatient counseling office, too. Um, where people were getting like medication management therapy and all of that kind of stuff. Um, or there would be a rule change. And then all of a sudden, if you couldn't bill all day long for something, well, then there's no reason for us to be here, you know? And so then, because it's never about the true needs of what people, you know, of what the clients actually needed. Right. It was just about where was the place where we could make money cheaply and easily because once again if you notice the theme we're going to go places where we don't have to invest in real estate we're going to go places where they're going to give us a space for free um, right and then they get their like, 125 million dollars for their businesses right. and such and yeah yep. i got you that like, makes sense the office that i worked in in Paragold was one of their bigger offices and was one of the ones that had been around the longest and there was probably 10 therapists that worked in that office with me on and off over the time I was there. We all worked out of three offices. So, like, if we needed to use an office to run a group or to do something, we had to make sure nobody else was in it because there was three. And almost always one of those was being used by the doctor. All that to say, there's not nearly enough space, you know. Yeah. Um, one funny piece of trivia. So they didn't take our keys back either. You know, it was all just over. And um, like two or three months after the office closed, a friend of mine I saw that I hadn't seen for a long time, I saw it in the grocery store and they were like, you know, they just left all of that stuff there whenever they closed all those offices. They did not clean them out. They didn't do anything. And I think that was the way that they did with every single office. They they didn't have the staff or the people or the wherewithal to go and do the work that was needed to, you know, they were just leaving it to whatever landlord or whatever, because they rented all those spaces. They did, definitely did not build or buy any buildings for any of their outpatient clinics. Interesting. So, wow. Yeah. So very, very, uh, I mean, yes, definitely a businessman and a, right. know, a businessman to a fault, it sounds like to me. So I mean, some know. real unethical stuff that they had going on um, that was related to business was, you know, you've talked a lot about the judges that were referring uh, kids to this facility, but the the workings of that were a little bit like more it, it was a little bit more than just hey this judge is doing this and i'm sure they were being bribed i mean of course but but what i know is that they had they had a marketer which is wild to me that that's what this person's title was but she was marketer slash assess assessment coordinator um and there were three of them at one time. I know the one that was located in Paragold. Um, and then there was one that was more towards the Pocahontas, Warm Springs, Western Arkansas. And then there was one in the Southern region. But all three of those people had offices within the court or juvenile probation office of that county. 
Oh, wow. That's and so they were friends with the juvenile. And see, that's kind of I, I, that's kind of the piece of the puzzle, I think, that is missing from some of the stories that people have been telling only because it's like only the people that were working within that system would know that. So the, you know, these people are – these marketers are maybe befriending some of the judges and well, Or the, like see, the probation officers have a ton of power in our counties um, because almost always the judge takes the recommendation of the probation office when they sentence somebody to a facility. Oh, okay. And but now the judges definitely were on the dole too. You know what I mean? Like right. the situation with Judge King, and then so Judge Fergus is a judge that and I think Judge Fergus is now deceased, but he was the judge for the Second Judicial District of Arkansas, which is the district that's just to the east of where Judge King was, um, and so it covered. All the way to the border, pretty much um, from Jonesboro to the north border and to the south border to West Memphis. So it was like a pretty good little part of the state, you know. Right. And his daughter was one of those marketers. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's not a conflict of interest. I don't know what it is. Right. I mean, geez. right. And it, it it seemed interesting to me. It seemed like whenever they started having some some of the trouble with getting business and they started doing stuff that were a little more reckless, you know, bribing DHS or what have you. It was it, it seems like it wasn't that long after Judge King had passed away and Judge Smith had been barred from being a judge again. So there were two, and these were two judges that were sending a lot of kids to the Lord's Ranch. Yes. So that that, well, that kind of that was something I looked at, and I was like, hmm. I don't, I, well, I mean, and it's also around the time that the Arkansas legislature looked at the fact that Arkansas was spending more per capita on mental health residential care than almost every other state in the country. Wow. I will say that the Lord's Ranch slash Trinity was not the only company that was taking advantage of that. Oh, of course not. These places are everywhere. People do stuff right. like this all the time. I mean, this is not right. We've I, I've but said they, it, I've said it a number of times. The Lord's Ranch was not an anomaly by the way they and, handled and, things, whether it be business or the or cri- alleged crimes that were committed. And I say alleged, but I witnessed crimes myself. I don't have to say alleged for those. Well, and you know, you can even argue, you can even argue that even if these places are not being violent with kids, I mean, because that is like the extreme bad case scenario that was taking place up there, and it was awful. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. But I mean, you can argue that that for anybody that is trying to make money for keeping kids longer, even if you're not mistreating them, that that is not in a child's best interest. Right. Like, you know, even children should be at home. I mean, I have a pretty strong feeling about residential care in general. You know what I mean? But like, especially when it's for profit, the decisions are not being made 
at the best interest of the people receiving the services. Right. The kid <laughs> isn't the only thing they're thinking about. They're, they're taking other things into account. For example, my, my mom had to pull me out of the place. Like they, they, they didn't do, they didn't choose to. I actually, I never even saw, I never saw them tell somebody that they had, uh, you know, Hey, you, you did everything you were supposed to. You, 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 you finished your program. You're good to go. I think there was one kid actually, uh, that I saw go home in like four months and the kid just like, he just never talked. He was just this. He just did not seem like a bad person at all. It just seemed like he didn't belong there. And that kid got out early, and I don't know his whole story. I do remember him, though. And uh, the girl that I've been doing this work with, they were trying to convince her parents to basically uh, say that she was incompetent. And And they insinuated that their doctor would testify that she was incompetent. And uh, when, because she was 17, she was about to turn 18. Once she was 18, she'd be free to go. See, and the rules for that, the rules for doing that in Arkansas were a lot less strict in the mid aughts than they were later, like even when I was working for them. You know, I will say that, um, you know, talking about how they they changed, they, they started kind of, I think, freaking out. Like you're saying, whenever like those judges, you know, were no longer there. But another thing that happened, like when the legislature recognized how much money was being spent, um, they started, I mean, Medicaid changed the rules for how they would approve kids to go into residential facilities. And so it became a lot more, you know, difficult to get Medicaid. Even with it being Trinity, you know what I mean? We did have, you know, I don't know that he's perfect, but we did have a, a Democrat governor, Mike Beebe, at that time. That was the last one, you know, before uh, before they closed that wasn't particularly on board with them. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't pull any favors. I'm sure he did. But he vocally talked out loud about um, the for-profit mental health industry here, and it was under him. Now, just like anything with the government, you know, when they change the rules and make things harder, it doesn't particularly make patient care any better. It just means that therapists have to do a lot more work, you know. Right. But right. I was fine. Right. I was fine with them limiting how much kids could go to residential because that was not anything I particularly did much anyway. You know what I mean? I, I didn't send kids away. If they had to go to acute care, like what you were talking about, you know, I know I, I heard some of the podcasts, like the place that you went first um, before you came to the ranch uh, is probably what is known now as like acute care hospital. You know, like if you are in a mental health crisis or whatever, you know, then that's where you go first to right. stabilize. It's it's a short term type of thing. You go there, you right. stay there for a couple of weeks. You you go through some. Right. How are you feeling? What describes your yeah. feelings? And you have some meetings and you have discussions sure. and you kind of try to determine what's going on with you and try to steer you on a better path. But if you right. run into one of those places again, then they start thinking about the long term. Right. But I mean, after the Lord's Ranch, I was much worse off. 
uh, oh, yeah. as a human being than I had been when I had gotten there. So it wasn't very long before I ended up going to another facility. And I was like, oh, wow, here we go again. I have to go through this. But then I realized that this facility actually did things by the book. So much so that I read the book that they gave me and I found stuff that they weren't doing and they weren't, it wasn't anything like, it wasn't anything terrible, but I was like, well, it says here that you do this and this isn't happening. And they go, you know what? You're right. We'll set you up with a meeting with the owner and, you know, we'll get something set up. And they got, they fixed it. They brought all the stuff back that was in the pamphlet. Which is pretty great, honestly. I would have, I would have probably been a social worker that would have been pushing you to do something like that, because that's just always been my way, you know. I'm, uh, I am, um, I kind of went back to work for them the second time, honestly, with sort of a curious, like, figuring out how can I figure out what this place is doing that's bad, because I knew, <laughs> you know what I mean, like, like I knew, and I wasn't worried about my own practice. I know. I know I know how to help people, you know what I mean? And so I just, you know, like one interest, one like story about the time that I did go to the ranch for orientation, we had to go like three days in a row and mostly sit through a bunch of classes that the accreditation body says we have to sit through, you know what I mean? Sign a bunch mm-hmm. of papers, but they did take us on a tour of the ranch. And what I know now is that like a lot of other people has said, it was a very small tour. <laughs> You know, it was, I think we saw two houses that looked like they were almost new. And then we went and ate in the cafeteria. And then we came back to like the main building and yep. sat in our boring meetings for the when, rest of the time. When they would bring people to check out the facilities, to investigate the facilities, uh, I've heard stories of, you know, basically like the girl side, for example, they would have to just make the house spotless, make it look yeah. perfect. They turn on the TV that they never used and whatever house had the cleanest, whatever house was the cleanest and won the contest, as they had put it, got ice cream. And of course, they got boring vanilla ice cream and everybody got to sit down and eat their little, of course they did. Their little boring vanilla ice cream and watch a movie. And then when they realized that the people who were going by these houses weren't going to be going to that particular house, they ended the movie early and sent everyone to bed. And they left the vanilla ice cream out all night and melted it so no one would ask for any more. Oh, and, my and, God. That is and, and, just... And, and, and their excuse for getting vanilla ice cream was, well, some people could be allergic to something. I'm like, okay, have you never, you've never heard of people being lactose intolerant? I mean, I what do you, what is wrong with you? Yeah, people? but from what I've heard y'all <laughs> talk about, it didn't matter if people were allergic to things anyway. Oh yeah, certainly not with suave shampoo. It surely didn't right. matter. And um, yeah. sure they, they went. And I, I've heard of a girl that, I mean, on on the page, there's been there. Are have been people who have commented and told stories about like, like there was this one girl who claimed that she was forced to eat something that she said she was allergic to. And she started, I don't know if she was throwing up or whatever. I, I can't remember exactly what happened, but she did have a adverse reaction to it. I feel like and, I heard um, that story too. Yeah. And, and, and the fact of the matter is that it's just like they just didn't trust us. It was like they were mm-hmm. they were programmed to think we were the worst of the worst and that we were going to harm them. And a lot of staff would use excuses like, well, usually when we would put our hands on kids before they would put their hands on us, it was because we were protecting ourselves because we could see it coming. I'm like, oh, so when you picked up that 
90-pound girl and slammed her against the locker right. as a professional athlete, you were concerned about the damage that she could have done to you? That's interesting. The whole thing well, is a joke to me. I mean, the whole place and, is and a honestly, joke. It's a culture, you know, you have to call that culture. You have to create that culture of a facility, which is a hundred percent from the top down. I mean, like there's no way that those people that worked there thought it was okay to do that until they saw somebody else do it and not get in trouble. That's exactly you know, until right. They, right. Yeah. And until they saw that people that did tell like the people that have been on your podcast did get in trouble, you know? Right. And so then they just keep the, I mean, and it does become like you guys have talked about a lot. It becomes a cult, you know, or cult like it becomes like, unless you think this way, which is totally fucked up. You know, I mean, to, unless you think it's okay to hurt children that are here to get better, then you can't work here. I mean, and, and if you really boil it down to what it is, that is exactly what it was. It legitimately, like, when you say culture, I mean, and cult, I it legitimately, I mean, the more I hear about it, the more I feel it was kind of, it was a cult. They would have people who worked in the office, and they would have these Bible studies with them. And, like, these are office workers. They're not, mm -hmm. they would have Bible studies. And this one person told me that they, this guy stood on a hill, and he said, we have such and such amount of acres, there's this amount of people of us. Uh, we're going to survive and the others are going to die or something to that effect. Uh, I can't remember the, I can't remember verbatim what they said, but they said something to that effect. It sounded exactly sure. like something that you would have heard in Waco or something like that. You know what I mean? It was just completely ridiculous. And, and but th that's how it was though. And then you have staff marrying other staff, which is something that they mm -hmm. wanted to happen. And you have staff that married residents, another thing that they wanted to happen. I mean, there were ways for them to make money off of these people if they stuck around. And it seemed like they just wanted everyone to stick around. They didn't want people to leave. Particularly, I heard the Alaskans that they actually it caused the Ala Alaska paid more Alaska Medicaid than other that states. That makes sense. That was my understanding, at least. It seemed like they always tried to keep Alaskans a lot longer. I know of at least one Alaska, two Alaskans actually that graduated uh, shortly after I left the place. Bud really, he was very interested in getting Alaskan kids there, and he, yeah. was, he was so interested in the state that they actually were looking into building a facility there in 2003 in uh, Kenai, Alaska. That's, that's around where I live. Well, and that, you know, you don't pick a, a random state that's the furthest away unless it benefits you financially. Uh, and, and here's the thing. It was right by the middle school, the high school. There was right by an elementary school. And it was right by it was right by the juvenile facility. That makes that they sense had. for every single thing I know about that place. Yeah, it, 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 the, the place that they wanted to do it. I looked it up because I got the drawings and I looked at it and I'm looking at the... I'm looking at the sketches, and I was like, okay, that's by the airport. I'm like, okay, I know where that is. Uh, oh, wow, okay, that's where it would have been then. Like, geez, Louise, this is crazy. Like, I, I just, the the stuff that they had planned, but I think, you know, I think they ran into some issues because there were, there was, a, I, I know there was a kid that came back who had signs of sexual abuse after leaving the facility, and that was in the paper. Um, that was, I, I think that was the Arkansas times. It could have been that yeah. or the Anchorage daily news. I, I don't recall. I think it was the Arkansas times that had reported on that. 
And because uh, the Arkansas Times, they actually did a really good job at uh, kind of keeping tabs on them. And, Have uh, you talked to um, a guy named Benji Hardy? Uh, I don't believe so. – did he work for the Arkansas Times or something? Benji Hardy is one of the people, like the main one who was writing the articles there at the end. He did almost all the investigative journalism for the Arkansas Times and the Ranch, like 2013, 14, 15, 16. Because well, I mean, if he's, if he's interested in having a conversation or even wanting to hear recordings and stuff like that, I'm, I'm happy to help. And there's, there, yeah. I mean, uh, there's plenty of information that has not come out. And uh, yeah. I, mean, I mean, the sexual abuse that was going on there. And, uh, yep. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was pretty much about as bad as it gets. The only thing I've heard well, worse from the Lord's ranch was that place in Wyoming where they were branding crosses on kids who misbehaved. Oh geez. Yeah. Like, how do you, and I, mean, I, I thought about that. I was like, how do you even explain that? And I figured they were probably going to just tell the parents, yeah, the kid did it himself. It's kind of like a right. tattoo, you know, something that yeah, it, was, it was the thing that they were doing. You know, you can always kind of. There's always a way for adults to make kids look like the bad guy. Well, and that's the thing. If that's, they that's want the to. Thing. And, and, the, and, that's, and so many parents feel guilty for if they sent their kids there, and uh, including, you know, my mom felt guilty. And I tell her, I'm like, you were told by professionals that this place had a high success rate and it was going to be very helpful by people who had never even been there. And they were supposed to be professionals. So, of course, yeah. you, you, you took their advice. And then when I tell you that I'm getting beaten there and the professionals are telling you that I'm lying and I'm just trying to get out early and I have – and she knows, knew that I had been known to lie to get out of stuff, you know, like when I had acted up at school or something. Sure. Well, of, of course she's going to have trouble like – you know, do I believe him? I don't know. It's, it's 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 tough to say. She had a really tough time with it, and she was she actually ended up crying on the. They they laughed at her on the phone, and she cried. And uh, I mean, it was just it was it was terrible. I don't. And she, she she can't remember who she reached out to. I imagine it was DHS or something, but I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I remember you talking about like a like a caseworker coming to visit you, or like an investigator, probably for child mm -hmm. abuse. The one that was telling you that. You know they were going to leave you there or whatever. You know, I'm like, um, yeah, like, are you kidding and, me? Yeah. So my guess is just because I know how that system works is that it was reported by your mom or somebody that your mom told to what we have the child abuse hotline, which is like a state line hotline that anybody can call, but it is where like mandated reporters call. You know, and then they yeah. send somebody out from the county to investigate whatever it is. You know, and it's problematic. I mean, it's problematic everywhere. Child welfare services aren't funded at all in this country, you know, so it's like you're always going to get somebody usually that's underpaid and overworked. But in the counties where the Lord's Ranch was operating, you know, those people that operated within those communities, they either they had one of two opinions about that place. It was either bad or good. And right. that's kind of the way. Right. I mean, and that's kind of the way I sort of experienced it over the years too you know what i mean it was like i could always tell and this is why i thought it was culty the people who who were like sold out for the lord's ranch kind of like sold out for jesus or whatever you know right. what i mean it's like and that was the i didn't thing. trust those people that was the big thing to I me. It's, it seemed like it boiled down to religion, right? So if you, mm -hmm. if, if you're if you, you know if you're a Christian, then you're going to support the Christian facility. However, 
you have to recognize as a Christian that if these people are doing what we are claiming they're doing, then they are misrepresenting your religion. Mm -hmm. They are making you guys look bad. They are turning people away from your religion. So you have to recognize that. And I know that, you, you know, there's a lot of stuff you don't want to believe. There's stuff that I've heard that I didn't want to believe. I've lost sleep over some of the interviews that I've had with some of the kids that were there. Gosh, I can imagine. There, there are interviews that are that I'm not even releasing uh, because one, the person asked me not to. But uh, and and, sure. and you know the stuff that I heard in you know some of those interviews are the stuff that I lost sleep over. I'd I'd be laying in bed just tossing and turning, thinking about it and just feeling terrible sure. for somebody whose life. Could, you could just tell by the way they talked. They just had this. Yeah. Uh, they were they were kind of monotone, and they just they just seemed yeah. like they just lost. They just lost something, you know. It was well, just, especially the, they had a lot of foster kids out there on and off, you know, because just like everywhere, there's not enough places for teenage foster kids to go. They oftentimes get in trouble. Surprise, surprise. You know what I mean? And then then they end up in a facility because it's the only place that that they can go you know what i mean or whatever but often i mean and i think that some of the people you've had on your podcast were kind of in that situation you know yeah but those are the kids that have have the least amount of hope and the kids that can be mistreated the most honestly because they may only have a connection to one state caseworker that could be 20 counties away Mm -hmm. and the lord's ranch was the only place that they found to put them so you know nobody is paying attention to those kids. Did you hear um, my uh, interview with Ronnie? She was yes. uh, that was so she, she was the one who uh, they flew and she was built. older, right? Like she mm-hmm. she was the one that went to ASU or whatever for she, a while. She was there, yeah. She was there in eighty seven, and yes. uh, and uh, and she was the one who rode in Bill Clinton's private uh, plane to a hearing in Chicago, allegedly. That's that's what she had said, or she said she flew sure. to. She said it was the governor. She didn't know which governor it was. She looked it up and found that Bill Clinton was the governor the year that she did fly to that place. So that was when we made the connection of, oh, well, I guess maybe they had connections to Bill Clinton in addition to Asa Hutchinson and, of course, Mike Huckabee. And she also mentioned how Mike Huckabee would have weekly private meetings with Bud before he even became governor. And then – you they yeah. go from spending you know a hundred forty thousand annually of uh, of federal money to eight point five million and uh, once uh, Huckabee was you know where he where he got to be the governor and now you have another Huckabee that's becoming oh, governor, Lord, that is governor and it's like uh, what's what's gonna happen here like I, I just I mean he's still a felon. But um, as far yeah. as far as I know, I, I think his license, I don't think it's terminated. I think it's dormant. Now, I'm, I might be incorrect on that, but I believe that's something that somebody had told me. And I, I, I just don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's true or not. Like they would have I don't to know. You know, I'm not sure appearance. how all the licensures work. I know that as a facility and a company that they do not they still do not have the ability to bill Arkansas Medicaid. Right. Now, that doesn't mean everything, and that doesn't mean they couldn't turn it into something else. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, I mean, it's all still there. I've driven through. I've driven through, what is that road? Uh, Old Burr. Old Burr Road, yep. Yep, yep. Um, But uh, whenever I I was talking about going up there for uh, orientation, and I mean, I was just like, 
I was questioning of everything that they were doing from the moment I got there. I mean, I was sort of like, wish I was a journalist because I was like, man, I really wish I could figure out what's going on up here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as like, and I sat in orientation with people that were going to work all over the place. You know, some people that were going to work at the facility, so, some people that were working in outpatient clinics, you know, from all over the state or whatever. They would do orientation like once a month. And so they would be asking questions. And of course, you know, they know it's religious or sort of religious in theory. I mean, it was definitely religious, but that didn't really come into the outpatient stuff nearly as much. I see. Um, but one person asked, you know, I guess because they just didn't really know what kind of place they were coming to work for, you know. So is this like a church or like a nonprofit? And the, the lady that was doing our orientation, she was. Her name is Michelle. I can't remember her last name. She was at that time like the clinical director. Like she was a licensed therapist and supposedly she was supervising other therapists. <laughs> but huh. she also had this like sing songy voice and she did not speak directly to us about anything, you know. And when they asked that question, she said yes. She literally said yes. This is a nonprofit religious organization. And that's, like the one time, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, that's interesting that you say that because I spoke with a staff member and they said anytime they called uh, the Lord's Ranch their job, anytime they called it a job, they said it's not a job, it's a ministry. But then on yeah. their, and then on their website, they say that church was optional and they, and they, mm -hmm. and they wiped that all out. They got, they got all that wiped out, but we have screenshots of all of that, but they got it basically taken off the web. Like you can't even go into the archives and find the stuff that used mm -hmm. to be there. Like they went out of their way to basically just wipe themselves from the web. But we have, you know, we have all the I screenshots. I feel like they may have gotten that. in trouble for a little of that because by the time I went to work there the second time. The religion part was definitely toned down, you know, I mean, at least in like the speech. But now when that person asked that question in the training, the lady looked at him and said, yes, that's what we are. We're, a, you know, we're, we are a residential mental health facility, but yes, we are, you know, a ministry. But she said, yes, when they said, are we a nonprofit? So my hands immediately went up and it's like the only time that I let myself sort of I don't question anything out loud. I was really trying to be like a fly on the wall, you know? Right, sure. But yeah. I just raised my hand and I was like, um, I worked here before. I'm pretty sure this is a for-profit company, right? Like, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that this is like, just like any other for-profit company, like you make money and you keep it. And she's like, yes, well, yes, on paper it's for-profit, but in our hearts, it's a ministry, and they take the money and put it back into the organization like a nonprofit organization. And to back into the organization, yeah. If you, if back the organization into Tetzel's is, pockets. Yeah, I was going to say Tetzel's pockets, the organization. That's all, you know. Jeez Louise, right. that is that that is yeah. ridiculous. That that reminds yeah. me the the kind of stuff that they would say. They would they would always say the most ridiculous answers if you just basically called them to the carpet. For example, the uh, Sammy she had talked to the guy to this guy and said, "Hey, on your website, when she had to go to church or chapel, she said, "Hey, on your website it says that chapel is optional." 
And he said, you have the option to close your eyes and pretend you're not here or <laughs> pretend you're somewhere else. Right. And then get punished for it, I'm sure. Well, yeah. I mean, they didn't like you for it. That's for sure. If you right. ever tried to I mean, you may not carpet. have had a formal punishment, but the way they treated you differently than the other kids that would just go and not say anything about it, I'm sure it was sort of a punishment. Well, there was a lot of scary yeah. things that would happen there, too. Like, you know, there was a... I've heard a lot of people say that people would just suddenly no longer be there and they were not allowed to talk about them. And of course, everybody for their first thought is murder. But, you know, that obviously, you know, that that's a that's a big leap. My thought was uh, I, I spoke with somebody, though. She said that she had her arm broken by Alonzo Giles outside of the chapel. And after that. They took her to a house. They had a nurse check it out. They said, yes, it's broken. She needs to go to a hospital. So, and they're like, okay, uh, we're going to take her to the hospital. Don't tell, don't tell the girls that we're taking her to the hospital. Uh, if they ask, just make something up. They're basically just trying to cover it all, cover that part up. And then she ends up living with one lady for like six months before she finally got out of that place. I don't know if it was six months. It, it, was, it, it, was, it was while she was healing. And uh, anyways, she went and lived with her, but none of the kids knew. None of the kids knew what happened to her. The last time they saw her was she was getting walked out of the chapel. And, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's going to scare kids. I mean, put put yourself in my shoes when they're telling me that, well, we're going to ask this person about, you know, your accusation. And then we're going to do a formal investigation and determine what happened. I'm like, and then you're just going to leave me alone with them because I've only known these people for a week or two. Right. And I've already been attacked. I've already been concussed. I mean, what, 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 are, you know, I didn't know and, about disappearances. And an adult related but, to you had already reported them to the authorities, right. which also was something that would, you know, make you stand out to them. Yeah, like that—that that pisses them off. And I had to write—I had to write a letter to my mom in code because they would screen all of our letters. Which I think, yeah. you, if you—if you listen to the podcast, you've probably heard that already. And uh, but, but uh, I mean, it's still—it—it—that is—that is something that's not that uncommon in facilities. Is that you know, is—is is that at least the incoming mail would be screened? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that I even agree with it then, but like. You know, of course, you don't want contraband coming in and things like that. You know what I mean? Right. But I understand like, okay, that. I mean, if you're in that system and you're just a client or you're a parent of a kid or whatever, you don't know all that stuff. You know, you don't know that, like, these people aren't getting rich off of you. Um, and they are mostly looking out for your best interest, you know, um, because nobody explains it to them. You know, like parents, kind of like your mom, or especially like parents whose kids are in trouble. The youth shelter was like a place where if kids ran away and police picked them up and, you know, a mom comes to pick up a kid at a place where their kid is and they're recommending them do this, this, or this, you know, they're probably going to be like, I'm terrified. I'm glad that you found my kid. I'm going to do what you say. You know, I'm going to, um, one of the things I think that is so significant here, at least in Arkansas is how much power, especially then that these juvenile probation offices had Mm -hmm. and the relationships that those officers had to marketers or people that worked with the ranch totally dictated whether or not 
they sent kids there. Well, yeah, they're like, trying. They're trying to befriend the people that can do them yes. those kind of favors. And once but that, you know, happens, they knew the offices that didn't like them either, because there were like. So my experience was. Paragould is in Greene County, Arkansas, and in their courthouse was where they did have someone there working that was that was from the Lord's Ranch that was their referral specialist is what they called it. It was a person that would do assessments on kids about whether or not they met criteria who did not have a degree. Well, at least did not was not a licensed mental health professional. A specialist, huh? <laughs> right. I think they probably had to have a bachelor's degree or whatever. Uh, but like still there was a lady that was there one day when I was with a kid in that probation office. And I was like there for a meeting with the kid's probation officer. And this kid wasn't going to residential. This was just like one of my clients had gotten in trouble. You know what I mean? And I was just like there with the mom to sort of advocate for them or whatever. And as we were talking, the person who I knew was the Lord's Ranch uh person came into the room while we were talking about this kid that she had nothing to do with and just started spouting all this nonsense about how he needed to get his shit together or he was going to, I mean, all this stuff like you hear that, that I hear you guys talk about what the ranch would say when kids would want to leave or, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's a culture. This person didn't even work in the facility. Right. And she was using that same language of like, got to get it together. And this was like a 12 or 13 year old boy, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just like raised my hand and said, once again, I knew exactly who she was, but I was like, who are you? And what do you have to do with this conversation? <laughs> well, done. and so she started saying it and I looked at the bomb and I was like, do you consent to her being part of this private mental health and, and private uh, parent conference with your child juvenile probation officer. And I mean, of course, you should have seen the look on her face, you know, because <laughs> how dare I? And I was like, do you have a release of information signed for this person? Um, is he your client? Are you here to help? Because I'm, and I think I said this specifically, I'm not sending him to your facility. And so. <laughs> She's my, a specialist, um, though. She knew. Right. My relationship with that. I would love office. to see the percentages yes. and you know what 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 her uh, in her in her specialty you know where she, uh, how often she would send kids to the Lord's Ranch and stuff like yeah. that and what kind of what kind of idea she came up with being a specialist and all did she send them anywhere else was it like okay all right I'll no, put one kid no. in one place and then the rest will go to the Lord's Ranch like every. Yeah. Like every 60 kids I send to the Lord's Ranch, I'll send one somewhere else or something like that. So I don't look, I don't look like yeah. it's only the ranch, you know, I mean, gee, it's just. One uh, of the things that you could always tell was that the residential facility is what paid the bills. And they really thought of the outpatient counseling offices as just like places to, to market the services for their, for their residential facility. Because, I mean, because that's what they did. That's. You know, they would have these people that would go to court, you know, whenever they would have juvenile court to take any referrals and they would take the referrals for outpatient and for the residential facility. But it was all trying to be funneled towards the residential facility. And that's why that, you know, I mean, obviously they could make some money, too, but it didn't make that much money compared to. I mean, I want to say at one time that Medicaid was paying and I mean, it probably is still doing this, but. You know, like seven or eight hundred dollars a day for for every kid. I mean, like seven you or eight hundred dollars. Arkansas a day. Medicaid or 
Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, like, if you stayed at the ranch for six months, you know, yeah, $700 that's a day. That's going to add up. That's going to be quite mm-hmm. a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I've, um, I've heard a lot of stories about the amount of money that they would make. And there was actually a judge. A kid was let out of the facility, and Judge King said, well, you're supposed to stay longer than this. And he almost sent him back for another month just because mm-hmm. the kid was already out. He almost sent him back to the Lord's Ranch for another month. And the kids, I think it was, you know, a therapist or a caseworker. Or, you know, I, I don't know all the terminology because mm-hmm. I had all that, that experience. Oh, sure, no. But um, uh, nevertheless, the person spoke with the judge and they ended up, you know, not sending him back for the additional 30 days. But that's, I mean, that's, right. four, that's, that's four checks right there. And it, mm-hmm. it, it's like he just wanted to go out of his way to get another kid in there for a little while longer. Right. It was ridiculous. You know, my work, my, my work in and out of the court system has shown me a lot, which is absolutely money talks. But also, people do not want to be wrong. And, and sometimes I don't even know that it's about the money. You know what I mean? It's like, Judges and, and people whose job it is to like boss around kids that are in trouble, you know, they either take the avenue of they want to actually help or like a lot of the people at the ranch and a lot of people around everywhere that are juvenile officers, judges, you know, teachers, whatever, they think it's just a power trip. Right. And, you know, God forbid that somebody else say that you're done with this. I said this, and it doesn't matter if it helps. It doesn't matter if Medicaid's going to pay for it. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. I said it, so you're going to do it. I mean, that's sort of like that law enforcement mentality a little bit. You know what I mean? But yeah. like, it, it, you aren't going to, you are not going to do anything besides exactly what I told you that you were going to do. And I think that is sort of the inherent, I mean, I think that's where power comes into it, you know, because. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of people that have power trips against kids in trouble. Oh, you know, I'm, yeah. Yeah. And I know it's just that gross. all too well. <laughs> yes. Especially yes. at the ranch. I mean, those people felt like gods and they were getting paid like minimum wage, mm-hmm. you know, for what they're, they're not getting paid very much money there at all. I mean, I've, I've talked to the people and I've heard what they're, what kind of money they would make and what kind of, and how, what kind of hours they would work. And they weren't allowed overtime because they were salaried employees. And it was, I mean, so they get barely any time. And part of, part yeah. of, part of the offer though was that, well, we'll give you a trailer to stay in. So, so we'll be right. covering your electricity and on you know, your utilities, yada yada. And but it just it just wasn't worth it. And the there were and I've spoken with multiple staff members who were actually willing to admit on you know re- recording the kind of stuff that went on there. And you know they would complain about it. They would say they would just they would just try to. They they would they basically just tricked people into staying there, you know, and they they made it very difficult for people to leave. People like there there people would get married to other staff members that were there. Well, they met there, and all you need is one of them that wants to stay and work there, and you got both of them. Right? You know what I mean? And it's just it, there were so many different 
I don't know. There was just so many different things that they did that were so manipulative. And then they, and then you bring in guys that used to be in, you know, or that compete in the NFL, and they're treating kids like punching bags. I mean, you know, you have, I mean, this guy. There's a guy who was a running back in the NFL, and he punched this girl in the head. And he, and it wasn't the only girl he beat up. I mean, these people. I mean, a lot of them. I, I feel like a lot of them were a lot were legitimate sociopaths. Others I mean, I, were people I who learned. Others were people who learned from the culture. They got right. into the place and they were trying to fit in because you could and you could see the people who actually conducted themselves professionally because that was what was truly in their heart and they weren't going to go against what they knew to be right. They were the yeah. outsiders. They didn't hang out and laugh with the guys, or they, or you know, right. they, or if they did walk up to the guys, their demeanor <laughs> changed immediately. They, they, I mean, it was just one of those obvious sure. things that you you aren't really exactly welcome to this crew. You're not in and the it, club, right? And it was like it was like high school for them, you know. And uh, yeah, so that that kind of stuff, and. I don't know. There's 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 so many different stories. There's the staff member that wanted to record the ten year old fighting kids, and you know, or, yeah. or or them getting rewarded for attacking kids, and then kids losing their teeth as a result, and just all sorts of crazy stuff that I've heard from the place. And honestly, if I had not gone to this place, I wouldn't believe it. I, yeah. I or I, I would think they're exaggerating to some extent. But after seeing everything that I saw while I was there, I mean, it was maybe a, I think it was less than a week before I saw somebody get attacked by uh, by the guy who just ran for uh, Randolph County Judge, um, mm. uh, Randy, Randy Barber. Yeah, he attacked this kid mm. because he didn't make his bed right or something. He's throwing him into a dresser and stuff. And the kid's not doing anything to fight back. He just looked so scared. He looked terrified. The kid was like 12 years old. And he was new, and the only reason I know he's new is because he had short hair, and or he had long hair, and uh, they'd always, you know, they basically shave our heads anytime we get hair, or at least they'd buzz them or whatever. And but the kid just looked terrified, and he didn't know what to do. Yeah. And then as an outsider, you kind of you feel bad because you don't know what to do. Like, do I do I attack this police officer or try to pull this police officer? Off of this kid who's clearly right. breaking the law, even though they're in charge of me in more ways right. than one. Not only at the facility, but they have the law backing them up and a whole police station on this team. I mean, you, you don't know what to do in these situations. It was terrible. The whole situation, right. the whole place is awful. But I mean, children should never be put into those situations. And I'm sorry, if you're under 18 and you're in a facility and you don't have the power to leave, you're a child. I don't care what... I don't. I don't care how big you are. I mean, I don't care what what you did before you got there. I mean, the the power dynamic is what makes all the difference in the world. Because if you are a staff, you get to leave. You know, I mean, like yeah. You even if you live there, you know, they're not telling them what to do at every moment of their day. You know, and that's why I have such a hard time with the victim blaming that goes on with saying what kids should have done or whatever. And it's like, no, <laughs> these kids were brought here because somebody said that this place was going to help them with some sort of problem they had. And that's the job of you. Yeah. The people that work there, it doesn't matter which staff it is. I don't care if it's the cook or the therapist or the direct care that's in the dorm, the you know, house parent or whatever, 
a school teacher in a place that is legitimately trying to help people, all of those people have some awareness that these kids have trauma, that these kids are probably going to lash out. And you know, and even that, like, it's that, normal. They're, they're piling the trauma on. They're adding right. more trauma to these people's lives. And I, I, I interviewed, and I actually liked the staff member that I had interviewed, even though, you know, he, he was he was uh, on the side of the ranch, I, I suppose, um, or if you want to put it that way. He, he didn't come on there to, you know, say a, a, how horrible right. his experience was, right? But one of the questions I asked him was, what qualifications did you have to get hired for that position? And he kind of laughed at me condescendingly. And then yeah. and then all he – the uh, and I, like I said, I don't, I don't even dislike the guy because he was one of those guys who would do what was in his heart. He, would, he wasn't the sure. guy that would beat the kids and do all these horrible things like a lot of the staff. He was the one that would make the staff change their demeanor when he walked up. But he didn't, I don't think he was. I don't think he was really trained when he first got hired. He because sure. when I asked him, he he gave me the condescending laugh. But then he started talking about training that he had after he had already been hired. So it was on the job training. I'm like, okay, so you weren't you weren't really you didn't come onto this job with experience. You came onto this job to where they could mold you into whatever clay shape sure. you wanted. And then And who's doing the training? You know, the people who are sold out for the Lord Grant. Well I'll tell you, you know, one, of the, I mean, one of the people that are doing the training was the guy who broke a girl's arm and the guy that hid the girl right. for six months. He was doing the training. Yeah. And uh I mean if the per if a person can't control themselves and they're breaking somebody's arm and they're training yeah. on how to restrain kids or they call them therapeutic holds but right. yeah, I mean, just to church it up pretty you know. much, but you know exactly but, what's but, going on. Kids are getting beaten up. They're getting punched. They're getting thrown. They're getting stitches. They're getting broken limbs. I mean, all sorts of right. stuff happened. And, uh, and, and, and they wouldn't even, some kids they wouldn't even take to the hospital. There's this kid who had his shoulder. He felt it pop several times. He didn't know what happened to it. He's crying. Sure. He's crying the next day. He had to make his own sling. They wouldn't even let him see an on-site nurse. They wouldn't take him to a hospital. They wouldn't do anything for him. He just had to live with that, you know. I mean, yeah. can, you do, I mean, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that that is not how you conduct yourself at a sure. at your job, especially when yeah. you're dealing with children. Well, and once again, it comes down to culture. You know what I mean? And the people who create the culture of an agency are the people who run it because they're the ones yes. that will allow things to happen or not allow them. So like my experience working in this other facility was that anytime you have a residential facility, there are going to be people that take advantage of that power dynamic. It is inherent. Sure. But the thing is you have to get rid of them or retrain them um, in order for that to not happen. And I saw that happen. You know, where I worked, that's what we did. You know, it wasn't perfect, but it certainly was not something that was allowed as part of the company culture. Right. You know it, what I mean? It, it, like, can, it can be a learning process for somebody right. to have and it, power. And there were cameras and there were people that got fired. You know what I mean? And, right. and yes, there were some kids that probably were made worse for the wear because of that. But at the same time, you know, I mean, it, it was being dealt with. Right. And and when you have something like what was going on in Warm Springs, that 
the reason it kept going was because they allowed it and because they wanted it to happen because they thought it was right. And well, nobody could ever tell me different because if they didn't think that, it wouldn't have been happening. Well, they lost they lost their license three years after they got it. And then I think they had they had some sort of conversation and somehow they changed the the ruling after they had their hearing that it would be a probationary thing or something. And that was probably right. because uh, Mike Huckabee, I don't know who's governor at the time, well, but if I had to take a guess, uh, what was going on One of on the there? things I know that they did lose their, that they lost their licensing to be a foster care group home for the state of Arkansas, and they never did get that back. Well, thank but the that, good Lord for that, because they were mixing them with juvenile more. delinquents. <laughs> right. Right. And so, you know, the, the talk that you guys have had about how they play up people's diagnosis and symptoms and all of that, you know, if you're talking about mental health, it's a lot easier to document that stuff. You know, when you're talking about kids in foster care in a group home, supposedly those kids are not there because they did something wrong. You know, those kids are there because they just need a place to live. Right. And you're supposed to be helping them get better. Well, when they are monitored a little more closely because you can't document to their decline, if that makes sense. And that's kind of the clinical right, way you that talk they got about beaten it. up or raped or what Right, you. right. I guess those when kids I was there, are not supposed to be held at all. You know what I mean? Like those yeah. kids, there's a lot stricter and for good reason. You know what I mean? And so they, they deserve protection. They're not they're right. not in a place where right. they did something wrong and they're essentially yeah. getting punished while they're trying to improve on, you know, their behavior yeah. and whatnot. I mean, there was an eight-year-old boy that was molested by a resident when I was there. And and, and I've heard stories of stuff like that happening. I've heard of staff doing it to people. I, I, I even have a, the I have one of my episodes out where there's one staff member uh, grab this kid between uh, between his legs because they all went on a camping trip. This is like the sixth day that the guy had been working there, and it's possible um, his his mom had some sort of connections. And uh, um, from what I understand, they might have accidentally hired somebody who was a registered sex offender. Oh, you were right. actually a pedophile, and he thinks it was that guy that worked there for six weeks because he was so he he, he oh, was yeah, so I messed up he was so messed up in the head that it's six days into his new job he's trying to grab on a twelve year old in a tent. I mean, yeah, yeah, zero I mean, self control. People that that like kids end up trying to work where kids are because it's like easy. I mean, this is one of the unfortunate things about working within that system is that people do try that. That's why you have to run background checks for everyone. You know what I mean? Like, but honestly, not everything, you know, comes back on a background check, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's real gross when you see either it being physical violence or, you know, sexual acting out. Um, but it's easy to see if you are paying attention, people that come to work somewhere because they want to like take their shit out on somebody else, you know, but right. if you're not paying attention or if you're creating a culture in an agency that that is the exception, I mean, that that is accepted, then, then you get a whole bunch of people in a place that want to be like that because they, they find themselves there. Right. And, and they stick around and depending on who right. the governor is, they have the protection uh-huh. of whoever that person is. 
I was actually going to ask you a question. So you you, you talked about how uh, essentially, if I understood correctly, it was kind of incentivized to uh, funnel kids from the outpatient to the inpatient. Did it happen that same way in reverse? And what I mean by that is, if the what the kid was discharged, would that did they sometimes was it recommended oh, yeah. that they would go and have regular visits with the out outpatient as well? So almost always, except for one exception, which would be like not every outpatient counseling agency had its own residential. So they, so like the marketer for, for ACA and the Lord's Ranch would also market to some of these outpatient counseling agencies so that their therapists would also refer. So the only people that would not come back to our clinics would be the ones whose therapists specifically sent them from another agency because they didn't want to make them mad. They wanted to keep being able to use those people as referral sources. So like X, Y, and Z agency has offices in Jonesboro, Paragould, X, Y, and Z, you know, if they, if a specific person on paper from that agency sent a kid there, then they would go back to that person. But if not, then yeah, I mean, I did take in several clients that were coming out of residential. So, and I will say towards the end, I do think they were trying to kind of, at least in terms of the kids that were there on Arkansas Medicaid, I felt like they were trying to clean up their act just a little bit because the rules were changing and kids were definitely being sent home. Medicaid was stopping paying for stuff. You know what I mean? The thing about it is what bothers me about that is they they weren't cleaning up their act because they wanted to do better. They were cleaning up their act because they had they were forced to. They were put in a position where they were at risk and they had to do something to make sure that they weren't at risk or to make themselves look better in one way or another. And that was something that I had trouble with. Did you ever interact with any of the uh therapists that would go and work at the the inpatient facility did you have any contact with them um i had one one of of the therapists that was in our office transferred to the ranch but i mean like this would have been three or four five months before it closed so i did happen to ask him a few times you know and he didn't see much going on that was problematic because like he was a good therapist and I remember him saying that that's where he was going. And I was like, why, why are you leaving here and going there? Mm. Um, but, um, two sort of separate kind of weird things, which is, and we can come back to this, but Bill Sweetwood worked with me. Um, I was kind of saving that for the end and he absolutely is problematic. But another therapist that was my direct supervisor, I think might have been the therapist when you were there or right before you, his name was Mike Gibson. I've heard people talk about him. Well, did he have Um, dark hair, kind of short, uh, kind of stout? Um, that was the first, that that, that was the first therapist I had and I didn't like him. He just, this person would have left there by 2005 because when he was working with me, he was working for another agency. But I've heard this person's name mentioned on the podcast. And I had a conversation with him um, when I asked him, just like, well, why did you leave? And he looked at me and he was like, you know why I left? 
he's like, the money stops being better than what I had to ignore. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean that, that's really all he said, but he said that. Right. A lot of people, they just couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't take it anymore. I, yeah. there, there was a staff member who said he started working in the kitchen. He used to work with the kids. He started working in the kitchen because he had so much trouble with the stuff that he had to see from day to day. Right. And he finally, he yeah. just had to give up and he spoke with these people and they, and he spoke with this couple and they said, these are the most immoral people I've ever met in my entire life. They, they, yep. they said something to that extent. And there, there are, there are therapists. I, Mr. Sweetwood, uh, I can tell you that I, I, somebody told me that he had slammed, uh, one of the kids, he, he slammed a 12 year old actually for laughing at him. He was like yeah. 10, or, 10 or 12. And, uh, but that is certainly not the worst that I've heard of Mr. Sweetwood. What, was he working there when you were there? Uh, I don't remember ever seeing that guy. So I don't, I don't think believe he so. was. I don't believe he was because I was there in like 04 and 05, something like that. Um, I think I got yep. there. What was it like? Uh, yeah, I can't remember what what, what it was. I, I I, I'm pretty sure I got out in February 05, but I'm not positive okay, on gotcha. that. But uh, there there are there were other therapists that I have heard some uh, additional things about. So. Um, the, the person that was my direct supervisor for the last part of the time I worked there, um, she was the one who was also kind of questioning of it, you know, and she, she definitely wasn't down with a lot of what they were doing. But she did tell me when I reached out to her um, that Bill Sweetwood was the only therapist that worked in our clinic that was on a very high salary that did not have anything dependent on how much he was billing. Really? Yes, and that would have been up until 2014. And why I told you, you that we worked by the hour, and that right, if we right, didn't right. see people, he was not in that situation. He made a lot more money than everyone, and it was not incumbent on his billing. So, what do you think it had to do with? Well, why? I just what, think what it was you, because he suspect? was personally. I feel like it was because he was a personal friend of the people who owned it and, um, you know, had their back. So he had, they had his back Yeah, because we all only made the money. Like they were very tight. If something happened and Medicaid didn't pay or, or something happened and we had something wrong, they would take money out of our checks. Hmm. And I mean, that was, that is, not really that uncommon. It's not something that you want to have, you know what I mean? But yeah. like, but, but what it tells me is that they weren't trying to pay us more than what they thought they had to. Right. Right. They would, they would try to cut every corner they could. It sounds like to me, yes. you know, there's yes. a, do you, so, you know, I'm sure you heard the story about uh philander Kirk passing away at the ranch. Yes. The staff member. There uh-huh. are so many different stories about what actually happened when he passed away. There's four different tales of what took place that I've heard so far. What's interesting, I know um, Ted, I guess he takes care of Christy Kirk. So he basically, <coughs> you know, pays for her housing or something. This is something that I, I, Christy Kirk, that was uh, Philander's wife. Um, okay, but she also did a lot of work in that facility and the, and, you know, in the office and everything. And if I, if anybody would <clears throat> know, 
<clears throat> anything that they did illegal, uh, it would be her. And it kind of makes me wonder if maybe that's why he's taking good care of her. If she knows, you know, anything or a lot and she has any reason to say something about it, then him taking care of her would certainly mm, maybe make her second guess doing it. I've, sure. I've, I've discussed that with people before and it makes sense to me. Well, and uh, you know. they could have lied to her too. Yeah, of, yeah. You mean about how he passed? Right, yeah. And if she was part of their cult, she probably believed them. You know what I mean? Especially if it's financially beneficial to her. You sure. know? And yeah. I mean, that that's more pointed than I think. I have no idea. You know what I mean? But I'm just right, saying. Right, right, right. We're, we're just discussing it. We're speculating. You know, right. it, it would it, be it, surprising be to me that somebody could be in that situation, especially if they did not really have any other, like, means to support themselves and this had been their whole life. Well, from what I had heard, too, was the kid attacked him after he... So after Philander was on the ground, there was a kid. He was, like, kicking him. I heard he kicked him in, like, his stomach and the face and all this other stuff. And I assume at this point that that Philander's neck was already broken. And uh, some male staff members removed the kid. But I, I didn't... I, I don't know if there were any formal charges made against him. Because I think the official story... I don't know that it includes him, like the official story that was maybe given to the police or an ambulance or what what have you, or I don't know if they flew him out on a helicopter. I'm not sure, but um, regardless, it 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 just seemed like they were covering parts of it up, and right. I don't I don't understand why. Well, when it's, you have a place like this that does have such an air, you know, like air of secrecy. I think that it is hard to find the truth because it's very easy for big stories to happen too when you don't have anybody from there saying, but no, no, this is actually what happened. You know what I mean? It's just like, and and I know that there was probably some of this going on. It was just like one of the big rumors about the ranch, you know, before I even really started doing much with them or knew anything about them was the Chicago kids. And there was a lot of rumors about how they were flying kids places and that maybe they were doing, you know, some kind of, I mean, that was just like, it was a very, like no specific details. It was just kind of like, it seems really weird that they have all these kids here from Chicago and nobody really knows why or how many of the kids that are here. And we know there's a plane. So, I mean, I'm definitely not taking up for them. I'm just saying that in those situations, when well, people can make up their own story, you know what I mean? Sure. Like, and nobody else is coming out to say anything different than, you know, and then you have people on this podcast saying, well, this is what, you know what I mean? That certainly doesn't help anything. But, mm-hmm. but that was the stories that were kind of like very broad rumor kind of things. Right. You know? like what's, like, well, what exactly is going on here? It was almost. Yeah. It was almost like there, there's. I, I spoke to a girl from Chicago, uh, and she said that it felt like uh, Bud was using them as like a, like a, I guess like a like a token or something. You know, it was a. It was something. It, it was something to show off. I guess that they were sure. showing them the, the the way, and they're bringing kids out of this dangerous city where people are getting murdered and stuff, and. And I've also, and I also spoke to uh, another one of the uh, guys that was there, and I, I actually speak to him pretty regularly now. 
And uh, when he was a child, he I think he was, I believe he was 14 when it happened, but he was the one who had that shoulder injury. And, mm. and he they did the, they did this to him with the entire house in a circle. So everybody's watching this staff member basically sneak attack this kid and potentially fracture his shoulder because he never got an x-ray. We don't know what happened. He still has he still has shoulder problems to this day because of it. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean sure. I guess I can't say that for sure. I'm not a doctor that that because right. of it, but he didn't get this any treatment. He, he didn't get any treatment for it. He sure. didn't get any physical therapy. He didn't get a sling. He didn't get it looked at. Nothing happened. All that happened was he goes, I don't know if you could hear it, but I felt I I, I know for sure that it popped. I, I I don't I don't know if it was just me feeling it or if people could hear it or if I could hear it, but it, it I mean my shoulder was popping. He said it popped twice, I believe, while this thing is just getting cranked behind his back. And that one girl that got her arm broken, I mean, it's the same thing. It was, it was a really there were the similar stories, and then there was the one staff member who told who uh, was supposed to write his account of what happened to this one kid who had his arm broken. They asked him to change the story. So, or to yeah. uh, t- to edit it. Well, uh, don't say his arm was broken because technically you wouldn't have known at that time. And and he's like, uh, okay, I'll I'll do that. And he writes the story again. What happened? What took place? I'm like, uh, well, don't write about like the physical stuff. Maybe just 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 write about like what was said and how they were interacting. And and he had to write another. He had another write write another account of what happened. Finally, they take the account, and then they have this meeting. It's a telephonic meeting, and they're talking to some gentleman. I don't know the person's name because he didn't remember the guy's name, but he looked across the table, and he saw, he saw Shirley Soul had his testimony in her hand. It was a typed testimony, not the handwritten one that he had made, and they had photocopied his signature onto it. They could have basically just said anything on there. He, you know, he didn't get a chance to read it, but yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's just it's very bizarre. So when I hear stuff about fraud and bribery and stuff, it doesn't surprise me in the least. I mean, really, it's like father like son because they both became felons because of the, because of financial sure. issues with their businesses. Yeah, that's what it boils well, down I mean, to. You know, something interesting, there was like somebody in sort of middle management at DHS that was one of the people that that he got in trouble for bribing. But, you know, kind of back to we're talking about the, the sort of power that the, the juvenile probation officers in Arkansas have. One of the other people, there was two people that 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 he got caught bribing. The other one was a juvenile probation officer in West Memphis, Arkansas. That Ted had bribed, yeah. So he he. There were two different people that he got caught bribed. There was were two what, different people. Yes, yeah. Was this was this the same case? I mean, it's all the same case. Yeah, because both of those people ended up testifying against him. Yeah, and well, from what I understand, the people and could, that guy they, went they, to jail. Really? Mm-hmm. From For what a I while. from what I understood, there was. Uh, I, there was at least one guy. I only knew of the one guy, but uh, the one guy that I had heard of couldn't have even done what Ted was trying to get him to do. So he was basically conning the con artist, you yeah. know. And, uh, yeah. and 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 I've heard staff members basically use that as well. He couldn't have even done it. So no, I don't believe it, it was. 
I, I think he was it was just a big setup and all this other stuff. And Ted also claimed that it was Barack Obama waging a war against yeah. Christianity and Which is all this hilarious. It's just 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 tons of nonsense. But some staff actually took his word for it that it was a setup that he was completely innocent. But uh, you know, other staff just thought it was ludicrous, and you know, they they wouldn't hear it. I mean, they might not say that to his face, but. They wouldn't hear it. Was Ted the guy that actually uh, interviewed you whenever you went in for an interview for the job? Or no, how, how, no. how did that work? No, there was a clinical director that was like the regional director over like several of the outpatient clinics who actually was a therapist. Oh, I see. <laughs> There's so, kind of strict rules about there. There's stricter rules about the outpatient clinics because all we're doing is mental health. You know what I mean? So like whoever supervises therapists, directly in terms of their clinical work has to also be a licensed therapist. Now, I, I mean, it was one person and she was over like 10 offices or something. I hardly ever saw her, you know, but, but yeah, no. And I didn't interview at the, at the ranch. I mean, like, um, it was in the, and, and, you know, and, and to the, the whole marketing aspect of it, which honestly is the part, you know, it's, it's like the part of the story that I knew about, you know, the, the person that initially interviewed and hired me, was a person that, that was there, like, um, there, so I think I just confused everyone. So I was supervising my clinical work by a therapist who was over a ton of offices. But now okay. there was a person that was a marketer who was only for, like, my county and another county that was, like, my sort of direct day-to-day, -day, like, HR supervisor, you know, just, like, person that I would have to go to if there was any problems like with my check or something, you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. But whose main job was to drum up business for them and to recruit therapists because they always needed therapists. So they're basically um, salespeople. They get like, right. uh, they, they got, yep. they made money based on who they could pull into the yep. facility and stuff like that. Yep. And, wow. and the person that interviewed me initially, who was my first supervisor to, you know, like I guess manager, he was a former principal who had been part of the group that got them into all the schools initially, like oh, several so, years before so that. They, yeah. So they had an in in order to make right. that happen. He so, was souring to them, and he left pretty soon after I left. I mean, after I got there, I will say that. Like, I could tell that he was kind of done, you know what yeah, I mean, like sure. uh, dealing with it. But, yeah, no, and I mean, that was just the – it was always, everything about them was always about opportunity. I mean, the person that interviewed me pretty much was like, do you have a license? Are you in trouble for anything? Will you do this job? I mean, that's, it was the place that like, okay, so you knew I, I was, I had left another job and I took, I went back to work for them the second time. Um, and it was really, it was really because like, I just wanted freedom to kind of figure out what I was going to do. And I knew, I knew I could go work there. You know what I mean? It was like, there, there was not a lot of discernment in, I, in terms of who they picked. You know what I mean? It was like, I, I want to leave this job. I really don't like it. I, and I like my friend, let me know. And I was working there submitting my paperwork a week later. So, I, don't know, I was licensed and, and everything. There wasn't anything wrong with that. It wasn't like they were hiring people to do a job that they weren't supposed to do. Well, it was good. just like they always needed people, and that's just not a good sign. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like 
if you always are advertising for therapists, that means that they don't stay very long. I was going to say, it sounds like they had a high turnover rate. Yeah, definitely. They just kept on trying. Yeah, I've I've known plenty of jobs like that, and I've worked a Mm -hmm. couple of them. And uh, yeah, (laughs) I know the experience. So uh, not surprised to hear that kind of stuff. So uh, how was, was there anything that, anything else that kind of struck you as bizarre in the, in, in that place as opposed to, so like this place in particular, it, how it was different from the other places that you had worked at do you would you consider it the worst place would you were there places definitely the worst definitely the worst company that has employed me in terms of of i mean pretty much anything except they certainly didn't micromanage me i mean that was the only thing they didn't do okay okay so they didn't they didn't everyone that worked there seemed to work there because i'm sorry I was just going to say, so they didn't micromanage, but it was poorly organized and they made things more yes. difficult than it had to be. Things like that. No resources. Was, right. Okay. Wow. And like even the office staff, the people that stayed there, even in the outpatient clinics, either were therapists that were just making money hand over fist because they could just see as many clients as they wanted to. There was some of that. But then also the office staff that stayed were definitely the ones that believed in the in the ministry of the Lord's Ranch. Like the lady that was our secretary was highly religious. And I mean, I had to ask her to stop forwarding me emails about Obama while I worked there. <laughs> right? That's the right, kind of stuff that right, was happening. Yeah. yeah. Um and then, like the other secretary that worked in the office, that's so funny. Yeah, I, no, I, I would, actually, if I, I could be a like, fly on the wall for that conversation. I try not to make a lot of waves, but there are some points where I'm just like, yeah, no, this is just awful. I'm not. You, this right, is like, work. I, I don't I, need I, to see I, this. I, I don't want to hear about your political views. Please, stop. right, right. The the other office manager, she was there at the end, and she and me were both kind of like. Like, we knew something was about to go down, and she was not on Team Lord's Ranch. You know what I mean? She definitely was kind of like, okay, they're paying me enough, and I don't have anything else, so I'm just going to kind of, like, see where this goes. But she would – I mean, she's the reason I found out some of the stuff that I found out, because she would definitely, you know, intel about, you know, the the rumors of – because there was so many rumors. I mean, you know, it's just like – from one week to the next. I mean, they would tell us that everything was fine. They'd send out these big mess emails that this is just, you know, this is nothing. It's all whatever. You know what I mean? And then I'd read the paper and I'd be like, well, that's not true. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you get to the, you get, and I've, I've heard so much stuff about this place. It becomes, it becomes difficult to distinguish fact from fiction just because yes. like, did they really go that far? Like, I, I don't know. Right. I, I, I can, I can attest to what I saw, but I'm not going to sit here and just n- not believe something because I didn't see it with my own two eyes. I'm not, you know, I'm not naive enough to right. know that I'm going to see everything. I'm not omnipresent. You know, I mean, I know stuff happens when I'm not around. <coughs> I wasn't on the yeah. girl's side. I didn't see girls that yeah. were getting treated and, you know, sexually. And, and guys, too. It happened to guys. It happened to girls. I mean, and and the thing was, the staff didn't really – I, I've heard stories of uh kids getting raped by other residents, like younger kids getting raped by other residents. And then this, uh, when the younger resident would tell the staff, 
the staff wouldn't do anything about it. Even and they yeah. would and they would even put them in compromising positions where they were working on a fence or something and leaving them alone and basically led to them getting molested. And it's so difficult to even say half the stuff because it doesn't even sound real. It doesn't like all this stuff. It's just there's just so much to it. Every time I even like anytime I when I first got out of there, my mom finally believed me. Right. I had no reason to lie. She trusted what I was saying. But like there's there are so many people that think you're exaggerating when you're telling these stories to people. When you like people that haven't been to this place, they th- they think you're exaggerating. But if you actually go to these places, you then you realize, oh wow, this is hell on earth. You know, this is yeah. this is horrible. And that was part of the reason why I wanted to start the podcast to begin with, just because, like, hey, this happens, and it doesn't just happen in Ar- in Warm Springs, Arkansas. It happens at a lot of facilities. This is this is commonplace. This is not an anomaly. This is something that happens at a lot of places, and people are just not aware of it. And they have these people that can wear a three-piece suit and look really professional and have a large vocabulary and speak very highly of the place. And you, you, the parents trust them. It's either that or you trust your kid who's been driving you crazy. And then kids, parents will teach, send their kids there. Or, uh, or obviously the judges who are getting put in those positions or probation officers, you know, they're getting put in those positions where they're recommending these places as well. Every time I hear about this place, every time I talk to anybody on the phone about this place, it just seems like it just seems worse there's always something new. There's always something new that I hear. Right. And I'm, I, I just, I'm like, like what, well, what, what else am I missing? You know, what else is out there that I know, just don't I, know about? I think about? one sort of, at least to me, and of course, you know, my perspective is very different, not just because of what I do, because I've been here and, you know, whatever, but like, and, and I've worked in a residential facility, but like the, the, the overarching idea that, when you when you put kids in a place where they can't leave and you're out in the middle of nowhere and you create a culture of them being wrong and you have the moral authority of, of church on your side, then it's very it's very hard for anyone to speak against that when you know they they have made this whole you know, insular place and kids have zero power. You know, I mean, and and like when you get them in there, even what's normal is for kids to go with the flow. And like, I know you've heard, you've talked about how it was even normalized to you because that's what you have to do in order to survive in a place like that. Yeah. And so, and and so because the power differential was that if you didn't agree and you caused the problem, you were going to suffer. You know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. to me, that's why, you know, when people talk about, well, how can these people get away with this? I mean, if you look, it went all the way to the organization that was supposed to investigate you being hurt, even them. And that's the people who are supposed to help got pulled into this culture of the kids being wrong and the grownups being right and right. the grownups having moral authority because there's no way that they would have convinced that person that you were lying if there was not some reason. Yeah. I mean, and it's just, I, 
that's just a big issue for me. And that's why I think it's so important that you have some sort of checks and balances Hey, on any religious organization that's getting federal or state money to take care of kids across the board. No, I mean, that's just like that. my opinion. Yeah, that's the but, separation yeah. of church and state. It was it was completely yeah. ignored. And these people, the big thing too, I mean, even it doesn't even have to be the people in charge that you have to convince. I mean, just convincing the general public is even difficult. And it's because these guys are wearing this big, massive cloak of Christianity in the Bible Belt. And, and they're looking at you, and they're thinking, well, this is a bad kid. They, of course the kid's going to make up this lie. So And then, and so then right. they, they talk to us, and you know we've had people come at us, and this happened decades ago. Why, would you, why are you doing this now? Well, because you didn't believe us when we were kids. We're telling sure. you the exact same story 20 years later or whatever, you know, and all maybe right. you'll believe me now. I'm an adult like you were an adult at that time. Maybe you'll believe yeah. I'm telling the truth. I'm not doing this. I'm not benefiting from this. I'm not profiting right. from this. I'm not getting anything for it. Every crime that they committed at me, I'm already f- far past the statute of limitations. There's nothing that I can gain from starting the podcast. There is nothing. The only people who could ever press charges or anything are people who were sexually molested and i was not i was not out that was not in that category i was a kid who got slammed around and beaten up and mentally tortured and what have you that's just the case which it's kind of ridiculous too that the statute of limitations for some of that stuff is so short like how many kids are reading legal books at that age right you know what i mean like yeah. like really three years three years yeah. that's what you're gonna give me to figure this out as a child well and it seems like the penalties and the rules should be stricter for anybody that was working with kids in any kind of residential facility. I mean, exactly. like, that's not the same as just like you being out on the street and somebody beats you up. Right. These people don't have anywhere to go. These are the people that are supposed to be helping them. Like, that's a whole different situation. That's you know? I, I, I've said the same thing. I completely agree with that. That's com- I mean... I'm not. I'm not reading all the different rules and you know everything. Sure. I'm. I'm not going to figure out. I'm reading Lion Witch in the Wardrobe or something like that when I'm a kid. I'm not. Sure. You know. I'm not. I, I'm not learning this stuff. I have no. I have no reason to. And I have no and, idea that I, I. I didn't even know a statute of limitations existed. Yeah. You know. But you know, the, think about what is the reason that we. That we allowed no statute of limitation for sexual assault. The reason is because people are afraid to come forward and that they often don't talk about it for a long time. Why? Often because of power differentials. And the same is true for kids that get abused in facilities. I mean, right. it's the, and the same problem. You know, I mean, you know what I mean? The same reason that we give this special rule, which is good, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. to, to sexual assault, like, the same problem happens when you have kids that are getting abused. I mean, I would say not even in a residential facility. I mean, like in foster care, at home, whatever, but especially when they're locked up somewhere and they can't leave. You well, know? I mean, any any place that, that has children is going to it's going to attract predators. I don't care if mm-hmm. it's a church, uh, you know, like a Sunday school or a regular mm-hmm. school, public school, uh, or a residential treatment facility. Uh, 
anywhere, yeah. anywhere, anywhere that deals with kids, predators are going to be drawn to that. There was a guy who was recently arrested that this one guy um, that I interviewed, he said that he felt like that guy was really nice to him when he was there and he kind of took him under his wing. But in hindsight, he said he felt like the guy kind of grew, tried to groom him. Once a kid turned 18, this guy drove all the way from Illinois to Texas to visit this guy. Realizes that he's interested in girls and not guys. He never saw the guy again after, mm. after you know, that was made abundantly clear to him. Not for any particular reason. It was just, you know, he, sure. he, just, he just picked up on it, I suppose. But at any rate, the guy just got, uh, he just got convicted for child pornography and he just got put away for five years. And in 2017, I believe, he was charged with the same thing, but they dropped the case. So he was a repeat offender. You know, right. I mean, just because he wasn't convicted the first time or anything, or the sure. DA didn't decide to pursue it. I mean, he was a, he was a repeat yeah. offender, and then on because top of people that, that do that, they test people out to see if they think that they won't tell. I mean, that's what grooming is. You know, you you figure out well, this is you know, this person is not going to do this, and then and then that's when they stop. You know what I mean? Like you, like that guy is like, okay, well, I'm. He is not, I'm not going to be able to convince him to do this. Right. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I know they, that's how they go from person to person and find the, which is gross, the weakest victim, you know what I mean? To absolutely, take advantage ab- of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't, I, um, I, I, I pretty much kept to myself for the most part when I was there. I mean, I had friends there and stuff and, you know, I don't, I don't think I put uh-huh. out any vibe that I was gonna, that I was strong willed. I mean, I right. certainly don't think I did, but nothing, no, nothing like that ever happened to me. You know, right. I mean, maybe I was just ugly or I got lucky. I don't care. But Whatever. also, <laughs> you know what? Your mom called DHS when you were there. The very That's first true. Time. That's very true. And the, one of the mm-hmm. weird things that happened though, is I did have that whole, uh, exorcism situation because this staff Ooh. member was convinced that this guy, he was mentally handicapped or he had some sort, he had some sort of issues. I don't know what his diagnosis was, yeah. but it was, it was something that, you know, it, it was obvious when you spoke with him and he, sure. and this, this staff member is convinced that this kid's like a prophet and he helped the yeah. kid break the door down so he could try to cast a demon out of me. They were not qualified. They just, weren't. have you heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? The what? The Dunning-Kruger effect is just sort of like this like, idea that people that are the most like ignorant about things have the most confidence in the fact that they think they're right. Oh yeah. Okay. I I've never heard the term, but I I've seen enough of it that yeah. Yeah. You know, you know conspiracy theorists and what And really church people. I mean, there's so like, I, I like to say fundamentalists because I actually knew a lot of people that were Christians in this area that did not want to have anything to do with that place. Yeah. Oh, good for them. They're they they were the smart ones. Maybe maybe they saw it's something, a certain brand heard something of of you know that just kind of cultish behavior. Well, m- you know, a lot of people they won't see past what they can see with their own two eyes. They yeah. can't they can't just and if they don't want to believe it, then they're not going to believe it. And that's how that's what's going to boil yes. down to. If they don't they don't have it in them to play devil's advocate. They just don't. I mean, that's that's how that's what it boils down to to me. I mean, they don't want yeah. it to be true. I mean, I, I've been told stuff that I didn't want to be true. And I remember I I'm sure. Talked, yeah, I talked to it. Uh, it, it was about a molestation case. This one. It was a girl that said she had been molested by uh, somebody that I had known. And I talked to another girl who knew her. 
and uh, I mentioned it, and I was, and and I didn't like the girl that had said it, anyways. And I was like, oh, she said this. I was like, she's always trying to get attention. I just like said something like that. I was a lot younger at the time, but um, hey, everybody does it. I but mean, um, you know, but the girl told me he did it to me too, and then that's when I realized it was true, mm. and. It hurt me so much. It was like it was. It was one of the times where I, I remember crying because I just couldn't. I was so disappointed, and it's just. Yeah. It, it just really it hurt to know that it happened. And at that point, I believed it. You know, once 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 I was told, it was just like, yeah, wow, this. And, and that it, is but, denial but, is a very powerful thing. I mean, if you really kind of wrapped yourself up in it. Yeah, and a lot of people will. There are still people who believe in the ranch. They believe in Ted's soul. They believe in Bud's soul. Mm -hmm. They think everything was all this, that, and the other. But we're talking about a couple of felons who all both committed financial crimes. I mean, this isn't a coincidence. You know, like there's obviously something that was going on. We know of stuff that was going on there. There are guys that deny seeing any type of physical abuse. And I'm like, you were there for like 10 years. Don't give me Mm -hmm. that. I knew it after like a week, at least something like that, like a couple days, week. I can't remember how long it was, but it was certain. It was less than a month. I'll tell you that much. It was a very short period of time before I realized, okay, this is the kind of facility I'm in. This is what I'm up against. Their staff is reinforcing prison mentality in that situation. I mean, that's exactly what that is. Which right. it, which 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 really bothers me because of the kids that went there for uh, foster care. There are, yeah, there are kids there that they were all treated like delinquents. Every yes. kid was treated like delinquents. Yes. They didn't. So there were kids there. There were people that went there because they were being sexually molested back at home, and yeah. they wanted they they had to they wanted to get out and. The Lord's Ranch was a place that was recommended to him. So they go to this place. Same thing happened to him there. Not all of them. Other stuff happened, though, or they saw certain things or, you know, there was physical abuse or or, or, or mental torment or what have you. Well, but regardless, it was they were treated like they were criminals. Well, and but, you know. As a, as a clinician, you know, a lot of what I've talked about has just been from my direct experience just with these agencies or what I've heard or whatever. Sure. But, you know, like one of the only other things that I really wanted to say to you in this conversation is just coming from the from that sort of perspective of actually being a therapist, which is that it doesn't matter if a kid is acting out. Like the, the idea that a kid is terrible because they tell a lie is is ludicrous because everyone lies kids that are wounded lie kids that have problems lie and if you don't teach them to value themselves and to understand their trauma and to work through what happened all they're doing is reacting and so you know because i i hear and it's not wrong you know but i hear either People in the comments or people talking about, well, you know, these kids were really this and this. And yes, if they're violent, obviously that affects the other kids and that's a big deal. The truth is that every single kid that went to that place most likely had experienced some kind of trauma because kids do not just act out for no reason almost ever. Right. And so they should have been treating every kid like they had trauma instead of. I mean, obviously what they were doing was wrong. You know what I mean? But even like putting hands on any kid 
unless like you right. like you said you have the right take unless they are literally a danger to themselves or others but i mean if you look at it from a trauma perspective like the reaction of a teenager is to rebel it is developmentally appropriate from age 13 to 18 you know what i mean and so yeah you're expecting something that is completely like what even if you look at you take the kids that say that they did well there you know what i mean mm -hmm. even those kids i just think it needs to be stated that like all they really learned how to do was exist within a facility. You take any of those golden child kids from the ranch and put them somewhere else, they're going to have problems. You know what I mean? It's like that's that doesn't speak well to them at all. Or you know what I mean? It, look at it this way. You send a kid there that did nothing wrong the entire time. The kid gets out because they literally they could not find anything wrong with the kid. Kid never right. disobeyed. He still might have trauma, he or she still might have trauma Absolutely. from having seen all of the horrible things that being jerked out of their house and put in this scary place. You know what I mean? It's just I I don't agree with any sort of scared straight. So I mean I'll just say that I I don't believe scared straight works at all for any type of child. You know, maybe some like you know, spoiled rich kid that but I mean even then I don't. I mean I just as a Sort of like I'm against the death penalty. I'm against scared straight because the system never works the way it's supposed to. And there's always going to be somebody that's going to be a victim. Well, you know it, what I mean? It, and it, it was a Machiavellian principle. It was basically uh, you, you rather have them scared of you than to respect you. You know that that was that was what it boiled down to. And it's like, yes. okay, what happens when I get out of here and I don't have an NFL player breathing down my neck? What's going to happen then? I'm probably going to act like the right. NFL player that breathed down my neck and start attacking people. And that's exactly right. what happened. I was, I was, I was violent when I got out of that place. And, yeah. when I, and then I got sent to another facility and then suddenly things sure. improved. I wasn't, yeah. I, I wasn't that same person. When you weren't scared all the time, you weren't in like, fight or flight mode all the time right you never want to be in a facility i mean being in a facility it sucks it can hamper your ability to grow as a normal kid sure while, I, while i'm gone and living in this weird society that my friends are in a normal lifestyle and they're growing right. up and they're learning lessons that i'm not learning i come out and i don't even know how to behave Oh well, the right. old, what, what would the old Ryan do? Oh well, the old sure. Ryan was too young. He, you shouldn't act like the old Ryan. Who do I act like? Do I mimic these people? What do I do? How do I yeah. conduct? You know, and, and well, it's you because you learned how to act to to your best that would service you the best in the facility, but that same thing didn't help you when you got on the outside. Right? No, it did nothing like that. It just made me feel like an outsider, if anything. Yeah, you know, and and I I had a lot of friends before I left, and when I got out, I could tell the friends that i had they were uncomfortable around me it took me a very long time to sure. fin finally feel like i was back to normal you know that yeah. I, I was just like i was i was my own person and i wasn't i mean don't get me wrong there's still i mean i still have dreams about that place yeah. i don't i don't dream about the place that was good never had one dream about it yeah. i have dreams about this place and that was a lot longer ago. It's always going to have some sort of impact. You're going to have that in you. And it is 8.46. You wanted to be on <laughs> till 8. Um, yeah. Right? So uh, We're good. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, what I was going to do is chop it off, which is fine because I'm, I'm also still talking. 
that was pretty much it. I just, um, you know, one last thing sort of as a therapist is that like they were billing Medicaid and insurance for actual mental health therapy and treatment and every single tactic they had, even for the kids that even for like that, you know, for you and working, like I'm, that's great that you are a harder worker, but I mean, like we shouldn't be working children to the bone so that they don't get mistreated. You know what I mean? Right. None of the thing that they did had any place in any sort of research evidence base. And, you know, that's what we're supposed to be like, you know, I'm looking at it specifically as like, they are billing for this service that is called this. It was such you know a, what I mean? It was, and, it was just a rudimentary ideology, you know? It's just right. the, the way that they handled it. It was just so, sure. like, it was just even so the, backwards. Like, straight, you know, even, like, any of that stuff, every single bit of research says that that stuff makes kids worse. You know what I mean? So it's, I it's like, it. it's not even that that it's, like, the harder side of it. Like, it's just, there's nothing that's appropriate about anything that they were doing there, even for kids that may have come out of it and not been like, you know, had PTSD or whatever. Like, there was nothing there that they were doing well, that kids, was actually a lot of kids would be sponges. You know, right? I mean, think about it. I mean, you, you you see that this staff member did this one thing that scared this kid so much that he did such and such, or he acted a certain mm -hmm. way. Oh, I can use that at school. So if uh, a yeah. big if if I, if I need to scare a bigger kid or something, you can get in their head. You pick up on what they do and the, and the way that they conduct themselves, and you utilize those tactics on other people. Right. At least that's what I did when I got out. Well, and you you look at the concept of like the school to prison pipeline. I mean, this is directly like the residential facility to prison pipeline, and I say that because. The last half of my career, which is what I've been working, doing up until about a year ago, was working in hospitals and jails and doing crisis screenings. So with oh, adults, wow. you know what I mean? Yeah. The people that are in jails are having the same problems that you guys had in that facility. Yeah, so I they're creating, you know, kids that don't have, I mean, imagine kids that said there for a long time, you get to where... You don't have a conscience anymore because you're it doesn't service you. You're brainwashed. Yeah. There's this there's this guy, I don't know if you're on our Facebook page much or what have you, but he'll comment on there about how the staff needed to be violent because that's what would make the kid behave and stuff like that. That's I mean, he and he was there for yeah. like eight years or something. I mean, the kid's completely brainwashed. He strikes me as somebody who doesn't leave his house. So I, I kind of, yeah. I kind of wonder if he's one of those people that he gets money, you know, through some sort of government program or something. Sure. That doesn't work. Disability and, or something. Right. right. And I'm not saying that there's anything, I, I'm not saying that sure. he has a mental handicap, but what I'm saying is it just seems like I just can't picture him having a job because he's, well, Seems probably doesn't, yeah, a, doesn't have a lot of life experience, and all he knows right. is he did, what he, did, he was taught there. You're right. He, he doesn't have a he, he doesn't have a complete grasp on reality. Yeah. It seems when I and when, it's when, institutionalization. When I yeah, yeah, you get institutionalized. And I'll tell you one thing, too. Whenever I was getting out of the facility, the second one that I went to, which was the last one, um, I I was kind of scared to go out because I remembered what happened last time. 
and how uncomfortable I was around yes. all these people that I used to be really close friends with mm-hmm. and how I didn't know how to behave. And I, I just knew, I knew I was going to run into that same situation. And I did. It wasn't as bad. I ended up getting my sure. first long-term girlfriend, although she cheated on me, but I still did get a girlfriend. So <laughs> I mean, there was, there, there were, there were some benefits, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I started doing normal high, you know, high schooler things and, right. you, you know, it, I, 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 I eventually kind of, you know, you, you snap out of it, but I don't right. think it ever fully goes away, and that's why I'm sitting here sure. talking to you right well, now. Well, and imagine, you know, you, and I don't know anything about your home situation, but some kids probably went back to a home where there was, like, way less resources or supervision, or maybe there was child abuse, or maybe there was something else and where it's like, you know, they didn't have the wherewithal to, like, know that like what you did was what you wanted to do you know and i'm I'm sure i know yours wasn't easy either you know what i mean sure. but like yeah. kids who went home and they stayed with some relative because their parent was an addict somewhere or that you know i mean just or they just went straight back to the parent who was an addict past that stuff yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I I I knew kids like that. I'd, I'd be friends with kids, and I'd go to their house, and I'd meet their moms or something. Their moms, you know, sitting around and screaming from the couch, and just seemed like a crackhead or something. And I'm like, yeah, and and, and they're just like completely numb to it. Like they're just kind of like talking to me, like nothing's yep. going on. And I'm like, so this is your life, right? Huh? Interesting. Right. Yeah. I'm like, why do I gravitate towards people like this? I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> maybe there's well, a, maybe, maybe a, there's some sort of camaraderie there. I don't know. But I mean, I think so. If you feel isolated from different people, you're gonna like gravitate. At least, especially when you're a kid or a teenager, you know, towards people who who are gonna judge you. You know what I mean? Or you're gonna feel like comfortable around. But yeah. Um, you know what what you're doing in the system where kids are abused is you're taking kids and you're sending them to a place that say they're going to help them actually harm them and then when they get out only the ones that can really like go against the grain can get better and actually be functional members of society so it's like it's completely backwards right yeah the whole like the whole system is backwards i completely agree yeah it's so. just you, you literally just have to survive what you went through, get past it mentally once you get out as best as you can and move along. I mean, I talked right. to a kid who was there, the guy who got his shoulder broken and or and uh, yeah. he got shot once after he left. Mm-hmm. He, lived, he lived in Chicago and, and he was with another guy and the guy that he was with was actually murdered. And he's telling me about it. And he's talking to me about it. And he's like talking to me in like a normal tone like you know it was a long yeah. time he's like it's a long time ago but you know i'm from chicago you know how it is and i'm like well right. i mean i i lived in inner city st louis for a little while but sure i don't think it was quite as bad as what you're describing to me so uh sure. yeah but um anyway i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me you painted a very vivid picture for me uh, <laughs> I, I really appreciate that I know that you've been on the phone for like two hours, and you didn't have to do this, but you did. No, but I, I really do I, I mean, it. I really had been kind of working up to thinking about if there was anything that I had to say that would be worthwhile. I mean, ever since I, I started listening to the podcast, and I finally was just like, okay, well, it seems like I have an angle that I think is kind of important that nobody has really, you know, this, that that because I didn't experience 
it as a worker there or as a client there, you know what right. I mean? But I just kind of watched it happen. Well, so. and, and, and I always tell people, I say, hey, if you have any experience whatsoever with them, tell me about it. It's like the police. Sure. Like, if you were in this area, you know, like a murder happens, and if you were in this area, even if you didn't see the murder, they want to know what you yeah. did see while you were there. Well, I saw this right. blue car drive by. A blue car? What, what, what kind of blue? Dark blue? <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you get details. Yeah. Or even talking Absolutely. to somebody even talking to somebody who lived in Warm Springs. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've talked to people who lived in Warm Springs, and then they'll tell stories about hearing kids screaming and stuff. Actually, I think I got the screaming thing secondhand because the person who had heard it had passed on. Yeah, but. I feel like I've listened to, I can't remember, that was one of the people, the guy that you interviewed that worked there, the one that, that had made the report, I think. Yeah, Maybe. yeah, there was... There, there was a lot of stuff that, you know, <laughs> there, there, I mean, I, I've interviewed a yeah. lot of people. I'll talk to some people and I'm like, I'll do the whole uh, fake name thing. And then I'm trying to remember the real name sometimes. And I feel like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, and I'll be yeah, talking I'm, to them I'm on sure Facebook. That. I'm like, have we ever interacted? Like, yeah, you interviewed me. I'm like, what did I name you? <laughs> I don't remember. So, yeah. But, yeah, again, I really do appreciate it. Uh, I'll let you Absolutely. enjoy the rest of your evening. And uh, yeah, if you ever have anything uh, anything else that you think might be of interest, we are always open to hearing about it. Awesome. Well, I will definitely pass any more information along. Well, cool. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, you have a good rest of your night. You too. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. I'll see you. Bye-bye. Wow, that was some fascinating insight as to how this facility was treated like a business. When you literally have staff marketing your treatment facilities in schools and courthouses, you're practically a mall kiosk. And to incentivize marketers to recruit customers is so counterproductive. You're bringing juvenile delinquents, kids who smoke pot, kids with mental issues, foster children, class clowns, violent kids, thieves, you name it. And the age groups span nearly 20 years, whether it be a six-year-old or sometimes people who were in their early 20s, or at least close to that. And the people older than 18 are there often because they have nowhere to go or they're deemed incompetent. So what does incompetency even mean? Are they violent? Are they delusional? Do they hallucinate? Whatever the case may be, it doesn't matter. You're having these people around eight-year-olds, six-year-olds. This place wasn't a nursery. It was often dangerous, and it certainly shouldn't have left young kids under the same roof of unpredictable adult residents. Nor should foster kids be living the same life as a delinquent. And even then, actual criminals didn't deserve to be attacked because they said a bad word or were verbally disrespectful. That's not what the law states. That's not what protocol calls for. And let's set aside for a second that Ted Soule has been accused of violence and sexual abuse towards male and female residents. Even if he hadn't been, he still protected an environment and a company culture that glorified this kind of behavior. I saw it myself, and multiple former residents and staff throughout the decades say they saw it too. You also have staff who say they were misguided when they were told to report abuse to their boss rather than to the state. Was it investigated? Well, not according to a staff member we interviewed. Ted, without a modicum of evidence, called the person a liar. That's an owner putting his business and that company culture before the safety of the children who were in his facility for help. And in hearing that every document was left on paper rather than electronically, that doesn't surprise me at all. It's much easier to get rid of. 
There are staff who will remain nameless who claim they witnessed Ted dumping trunk loads of paper into a burn pit. This place was isolated. So if you wanted to conduct any clandestine criminal activity on a large scale, it would have been easy to do out there. How many prying eyes did you have? Provided every accusation is true, which I'll go on the record and say that I believe them, then I guess you had enough people watching to tell us that there was much more to the Lord's Ranch than how they portrayed their business. Anyway, I'd like to thank Kelly Green again. The amount of information that we gleaned from this discussion connected several dots that we were previously unable to piece together. The more people who come forward, the closer we come to getting a full picture of everything they've done. Now I'm going to do something a little different for this episode. I'm going to ask our listeners to help our investigation. I've been trying to track down where the money came from that ultimately built the Zolt Dynasty. I'll get you guys started by kind of telling you what I've derived from some of the documents that I've located in my research, and then I'll leave it to you to keep pushing the ball further down the court. Bud Soul was from California. In the 1960s, he lived in Bel Air, and he was even friends with a popular movie star named Audie Murphy. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Murphy starred in a largely successful film called To Hell and Back, uh, and the film was based on Murphy's experiences as an army soldier in World War II. He was a very decorated army soldier, very famous back in that time. Anyway, Margaret Weirman, I think that's how it's pronounced. It's W-I-E-R-M-A-N. Uh, that was Bud Soul's mother. Now, notice she has a different last name. Was he born out of wedlock? Was she remarried? I honestly don't know. Who was this guy's dad? So I guess that would be my first question. Uh, moving on, though, Bud Soul owned two money order firms. They were called Security Currency LTD and American Currency LTD. Both went bankrupt in 1964 after authorities alleged Soul and his mother diverted $427,000, which is about like $3.3 million in today's dollars, something along those lines, uh, to personal use, leaving thousands of low-income clients with worthless money orders. They were basically like the IOUs from Dumb and Dumber. Bud Soul actually loaned that movie star Murphy sixty grand in 1961. And that's roughly $430,000 by today's standards. Murphy even testified at Bud's trial. This criminal operation was front page news in Los Angeles at the time. Not unlike his son Ted in Arkansas and in later years, but nonetheless, pretty similar. Way to go, Bud. Father of the year. Like father like son. Bud and his mom were also charged with manipulating accounts of a bank they owned in Mendocino, California, where the money order funds were held. This caused the bank to collapse. According to court documents, Bud Soul claimed a net worth of $800,000 in the early 60s. By today's standards, that's got to be like 7 or $8 million. But where did those riches come from? Who was Bud's father? It seems that he was born into wealth. Did he get away with some financial crimes? Did they run a successful business? And that's the second question I have for you. Where did the wealth come from? I don't understand what happened. What brought this money into the picture for the souls? That's what I want your help with. I'd love for our listeners to help trace the lineage back further. But let's try to identify the source of what made these people so financially successful. And let's find out who Bud's father was. Once again, I'd like to thank Kelly Green for giving us her time. 
to share her understanding of what took place in the businesses outside of the inpatient Lord's Ranch. Thank you. If you or a friend have had a personal experience with the Lord's Ranch slash Trinity Behavioral Health or have any tips concerning the facility, please feel free to reach out to us by messaging us on our Facebook. You can find us at the account named What Really Happened at the Lord's Ranch. We'd like to thank each and every one of our listeners for finally giving us a chance to tell our side of the story without being called liars, except for people with fake accounts. Thank you. We'd like to thank Justin Andrus Sr., a.k.a. Crew L.A., Black Tuba, for all the music he made on this podcast. He's talented, so if you want to reach out to him, we'll put a link to his social media in the description box. For everybody who took time out of their day to help make this podcast a reality, we want to thank all of you. Without each and every one of you, none of this would be possible. Let justice be served, though the heavens may fall. It's never too late to right another wrong. We'd also like to dedicate this podcast to Deanna Fields. Rest easy, D. You'll always be missed and never be forgotten.